Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, 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 Africa, do you feel it? Africa. Have any of you ever been to Africa, back to the motherland? There's something. And I went to Zimbabwe. It's a new country, right? It's about three years old now. Because it used to be Rhodesia before they killed all them white motherfuckers over there. <laughs> it's the only country I've ever been to. Black people kicked ass over there. Seven years, they killed motherfuckers, Jack. They happy, too. <laughs> you walk down the street, they just smiling. <laughs> Hello. Oh, they don't fuck with us no more, no. <laughs> Today, Swangle was arraigned on a federal fraud charge in connection with lies he allegedly made to get hired as a resident in 1993. I got all the evidence that he was traveling with when he was arrested and all of his travel documents. And he had a really interesting passport. Now, what we learned by looking at his passport was that he had been in Africa. So it turned out that when he left Northport, he eventually found his way to Zimbabwe. So now we're going to have to look at what happened in Zimbabwe. They put together a team of investigators, and they hoped that Africa would be able to offer them the clues that would help them build their case. We had to get to Africa. We thought if he got sloppy anywhere, if he was willing to take a chance, it would be over there. Maybe he's done something in Africa that can help inform us about what these murders were about here in the United States. Zimbabwe is the most beautiful country in the world. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say that. It's a world of wonders. It's a beautiful country. It was my first time in Africa when I traveled over there. At that particular time, Zimbabwe was in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. There was a shortage of doctors in Zimbabwe, and there were many foreign doctors who came to practice because of the shortage. 
Michael had come through the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and there was a pathway for bringing foreign doctors over. When he got to Africa, people at the hospital asked him, what's your background? Why are you coming here? And he would tell them, well, I've been so blessed, I think it's time I get it back. And people were dying to hear that and believe it. Flango was assigned to the Menin Mission Hospital. The people he treated were mostly obstetric patients who were delivering babies. Within a short period of time, the staff realized that he was deficient in some of the most basic medical procedures, certainly in obstetrics. And so that was the first sign of potential trouble. We learned he also might be connected to some suspicious deaths that occurred at the hospital during the time that he worked there. I got to the hospital, people were talking. This doctor has been here and been injecting people. His uh, syringes were always loaded. And before people knew it, the patient was either dead or their jaws locked. By that time, I think I had heard enough to understand that this doctor from America was up to no good. The U.S. team included forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Bodden, and he was looking for poison in several of Swango's possible victims. We had hired local grave diggers, and we would transport the bodies back to Bulawayo. But Dr. Michael Bodden would do autopsies and take samples. We also were able to actually talk to a live witness. And there were two or three cases where there were people who experienced some sort of intense pain right after you injected them with something. There was this rush of adrenaline to the point where they thought they were going to have a heart attack and die. And this elderly gentleman that I spoke to in Zimbabwe said exactly that. He said, I thought I was going to have a heart attack and die. Kenneth Mzeziwa was in hospital, and he said as he was dozing off, he felt Dr. Michael Zwango pull down his pajama short. And then he rammed his uh, syringe loaded with some pinkish fluids and injected him. Within a short while, he felt his jaws locking and the whole body going numb. Other survivors shared terrifying tales. And one of them was a pregnant woman. Virginia Svanda. She was pregnant and she was going into labor. Swango injected something into her IV bag, and she felt this intense shooting of pain through her body, and then this rigidity, and she could barely move. But she caught the attention of some staff, and she said, he put something in my IV, and we believe it was probably succinylcholine. Succinylcholine, it is a paralytic. This causes every muscle in the body to stop working. You can't move anything. They're completely cognizant during that time period. They know exactly what's going on, and then they also realize they can't breathe. Terrifying experience. The nurse took the IV bag down, threw it out, started another one, and basically saved those two lives, the baby and the mom. And at that point, there was an investigation, and he was suspended from working in the hospital. And he hired an attorney to fight his suspension from the hospital. I then started representing him, and seeing these bizarre allegations leveled against him, I then said to him, well, I need to see your professional qualifications to prove that you, you are a competent doctor. And that was never forthcoming. And I kept asking him, and he gave a variety of excuses, to such an extent that by the time we got to the labor hearing, I 
was starting to question uh, the veracity of what he's saying. The FBI learned that during the two years that Dr. Michael Swango lived in Africa, he not only worked for, but also volunteered at several hospitals throughout Zimbabwe. And the alleged misdeeds were not just happening inside hospital walls. Here's a guy who has been poisoning people around the United States and now in Africa. He showed himself to use arsenic in the Quincy case. So right away, you know, that's something you're always going to have to look for. We found five girlfriends. We asked them, you know, when you were with him, did you ever get sick? And one by one, they all went, wait a minute. Oh, my God. And they realized they had the same symptoms as Brent Husband and all these others that were poisoned with arsenic. At the end of their investigation, Zimbabwe authorities had uncovered enough evidence of poisoning to charge Dr. Michael Swango with five counts of murder. We have had the sneakiest representation for the so-called 50-year anniversary of hip-hop, even within the Catherine Massey Book Club. Way back when we were doing C uh, Sue Klebold, uh, we had It Ain't My Fault, right? Then, even in Swango, we had KRS-One, Zach De La Roca, Last Emperor, CIA Criminals in Action, and even Stetsasonic. 50 years of so-called hip-hop who knows how many years of white supremacy racism Catherine Massey book club context of white supremacy today's date Thursday December 7 2023 so I have been told our penultimate session on James B Stewart's blind eye we're picking up on chapter 11 very beginning much obliged to Jamie Foxx the late great Richard Pryor cowbell uh, the audio that we heard after those two was from the documentary very scary people part two about the mysterious Dr. Uh, Swango uh, that segment we heard Michael Baden how many times have we heard Michael Baden so he testified in the OJ Simpson trial he was brought in and wrote about Joseph G. Christopher, Joey 22, remember he talked about the sexual attraction and the similarity between the victims, read that chapter from his book. Uh, he also, just my personal interest, uh, investigated uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and a number of other cases, I believe even uh, Medgar Evers. He would definitely be a white person that I would enjoy talking to, forensic psychologist. Uh, we also heard the late, great Foster Dongozi, who will be quoted in this book, black male journalist in Zimbabwe, uh, who came to do really great work covering uh, this case. Uh, he's quoted in the book. I think James B. Stewart might have spoke to him directly. Uh, he's the person who talked about Zimbabwe being such uh, a beautiful uh, place. I am hoping to try to get copies of his reports. I think that would make for great reading just to see, you know, how did he understand white supremacy, racism, and how was that interjected in his coverage of the Michael Swango case over in Zimbabwe? But the great Foster Dangozi, who passed away in 2020, uh, we had uh, the girlfriends, the girlfriends, man, uh, 
they said they went and started talking to girlfriends and asking for the symptoms. I would have known, did he have black girlfriends, non-white girlfriends while he was on the continent? Cowbell again. That would be one. And then that he poisoned them all. Uh, we will hear from James B. Stewart after the audio segment concludes. It's going to be our listener talked about him being a gay white male. He gave a speech at DePaul University for their graduation way back in 2012, uh, where he talks about being a gay white male. So we'll play that just for context of second times we've had white male authors gay white male authors writing about white serial killers and even talking about how attractive and uh, the sexual prowess that they have. Dave Cullen too had that shooting at UNLV this week. UNLV that is the rebels. Anyway, quickly before we get to the report. So this is from the Argus leader. This is a South Dakota newspaper Sunday, December 27, 1992 Swango support was a comfort University of South Dakota Medical School dismissed Dr. Swango from its residency program in December five months after he had begun working uh, there Sioux Falls in three Sioux Falls hospital school officials contend that Swango 38 was not forthright and misled them on information he provided concerning his 1985 conviction for poisoning six co-workers while he was a paramedic in Quincy, Illinois. He served two and a half years in prison for that conviction as a result of Swango's past coming to light USD officials now are working on new rules to keep felons out of school programs whether they succeed with Swango is another matter. He is fighting his dismissal Steve Young writes in the end as her husband lay dying of cancer in Sioux Valley Hospital, Cindy Childress had neither the time nor reason to suspect Dr. Michael Swango's past. It was late September. Randy Childress' brain cancer was in its final hours. The family's last hope, a trip to Reno, Nevada, for homeopathic treatment had proven futile. Now, back at Sioux Valley, came the painful process of letting go, and no one gathered there had the faintest idea about the controversial doctor in their midst. I don't know what happened in his past, Cindy Childress says today of Swango, who was dismissed December 2 from his residency position at the University of South Dakota Medical School for failing to fully divulge a 1985 felony conviction. I just know the four days he spent with us when Randy was dying and how caring and comforting he was, he was great. Those kind of accolades have been few since the public began learning about Swango's conviction for trying to poison six co-workers while he was a paramedic in Quincy, Illinois. Contrary, I read a different news report saying the same thing last week. Swango, 38, spent two and a half years in prison on that conviction. He also was suspected in the deaths of several patients while an intern at Ohio State University Hospitals in 1983, though never charged. As a result of those revelations, USD is looking at its process for accepting applicants into the residency program. But Cindy Childress's assessment of the man who helped care for her former carpenter husband from Alvord, Iowa, has not changed. In two and a half years of fighting this, there are so many doctors we dealt with that treated us simply as numbers, as there were good physicians, says Childress, 36. Dr. Swango impressed me as being one of those who was very caring and very compassionate. 
for the few days that they were at Sioux Valley until her husband died September 24, Swango came in to see them four or five times a day, Childress says. He took time to know their four children, <laughs> to know their four children, she says, and when the family decided to end life support, Swango stayed with them from the time the tubes and machines were removed until Randy Childress died. News of his troubles floored Cindy Childress at first and concerned her, but after talking to friends and nurses at the hospital about Swango's time with her husband, I believe our best interests, both Randy's and mine, were always utmost in his mind, she says. I think he did everything he could, and she appreciates that. I'm not his judge. I don't think anyone can be his judge. That's what the last white woman said. Children said, I just know that when someone makes that kind of impression on you in a difficult time in your life, you want to try to keep it. The way he treated us was a real comfort. Cindy Childress, and she has a picture of good old Randy uh, with her. I thought I was even looking to see if she was going to have a picture of uh, old uh, Mike Double O in there too, hooked up with the children and everything. Like you got, I got seven up for everybody. Here you go. Here you go for the children. <laughs> Catherine Massey book club what do it mean to be white people don't talk that nice about me and i ain't poison nobody i promise you james b stewart blind eye audio segment one chapter 11 David Coltart, then 38, tall, slender, sandy-haired, and articulate, seems at first glance the embodiment of Buluwayo's colonial British heritage. But he is, in fact, Zimbabwe's most prominent human rights lawyer, especially that, under the oppressive regime of Robert Mugabe, has kept him in constant demand. He has often aroused the ire of the dictator. In a 1999 speech defending his government's imprisonment and torture of two journalists, Mugabe cited Coltart by name as bent on ruining the national unity. Ironically, Coltart first gained prominence as a civil rights lawyer representing dissident politicians who were being harassed in the early years of Zimbabwean independence, many of them now prominent government officials. He founded Zimbabwe's leading human rights organization, the Bulawayo Legal Project Center and his dedication to constitutional government, the rule of law, and the rights of the poor and powerless have earned him a wide following and the admiration of many white and black Zimbabweans. He is easily the best-known lawyer in Bulawayo, and he also attends the Presbyterian Church. So when Swango called Ian Lorimer in August, saying he might need a lawyer, Lorimer naturally thought of Coltart. The Lorimers hadn't seen much of Swango since he'd gone back to Manene, but Abdi Mezbah, the Iranian doctor at the hospital, had reported in something of an I-told-you-so manner that Swango had stopped working at Manene and something was amiss. This Mezba claimed to have learned from a Swedish nurse at Manene, presumably Larson's wife, but he knew no details. When Swango himself called the Lorimers from Manene, he told them only that something had gone wrong and he needed a lawyer. He declined to elaborate, saying he would explain everything when he returned to Buluwayo and saw the Lorimers in person. 
Ian was curious, but not all that surprised that things hadn't worked out for Swango. He knew how isolated Manene was, and how different the bush culture. Swango arrived at Coltart's office on the fourth floor of the Haddon and Sly building in downtown Bulawayo on August 23rd. The blonde young doctor struck Coltart as quiet, almost timid, but idealistic and determined to clear his name. He said that he had been summarily suspended by the Provincial Minister of Health without being told any specific charges or given any opportunity to respond. All he knew, he said, was that he was accused of having given some patients injections that caused ill effects, and that he was being unfairly blamed for the deaths of a few patients who had died of natural causes. He added that the police had come to his house at Manene armed with a search warrant and had seized a quantity of drugs he kept there. "'Why did you have drugs in your cottage?' Coltart asked, immediately concerned that the case might involve narcotics. Swanga replied that since he was coming to darkest Africa, he had brought a selection of drugs that he thought might be unavailable at the mission hospital. Coltart was impressed that Swango had gone to such trouble, personally carrying drugs into the country. As a lawyer trained to judge the credibility of witnesses, Coltart found Swango earnest and believable. But he was more impressed by the glowing letters of recommendation Swango produced from doctors Oliver and King at Impilo Hospital. Oliver, in particular, was a friend of Coltart's and a fellow member of the Presbyterian Church. Coltart knew nothing about Manene Mission Hospital, but he had heard of some factional feuds within the Evangelical Lutheran Church. He thought Swango's troubles might possibly be related. Then again, this might be a case of reverse discrimination against a white American doctor. Such situations were common in post-independent Zimbabwe, Coltart thought Swango idealistic and probably naive, someone who didn't understand the local culture and was in turn misunderstood. He thought it would be a terrible precedent if a promising young doctor were unfairly driven from Zimbabwe at a time the country so desperately needed doctors. So Coltart agreed to represent Swango, thus lending his considerable prestige to Swango's cause. Swango seemed relieved and agreed to pay the firm's fees in cash. In any event, to Coltart the charges seemed vague and far-fetched. The next day he sent a letter to the police in Gueru, demanding to know on what grounds they had searched Swango's residence, and to learn the details of any charges they anticipated filing. He complained that his client had been confronted with unspecified allegations, to the effect that he had injected patients with the wrong drugs that caused a bad effect. Coltart said he would appreciate precise details at your earliest convenience. The police replied on September 9th, writing that precise details will be forthcoming in a matter of days. But nine days later, Coltart received a letter saying that we are now unable to give details as the docket has been referred to a higher office for action. That higher office turned out to be Zimbabwe's director of public prosecution, the equivalent of the Attorney General of the United States. But the evidence was still far from conclusive. Lab results from Margaret Jo's tissue, which had been sent to Bulawayo and then to Harare for testing, proved inconclusive. The pathologist pointed out that unless someone could indicate what substances were believed to have induced death, he had no way of proceeding. The same problem that had beset pathologists in the United States 
Given the lack of physical evidence, the prosecutor's office had ordered the police to continue investigating and postponed any decision to file charges. None of this was known to Coltart or Swango, and additional letters from Coltart produced no further explanation. As time passed and no charges or evidence materialized, Coltart began to suspect that this might indeed be a political case of anti-white discrimination against Swango. Coltart knew of other cases. White safari operators were a recent example in which people were arrested but never charged. In Coltart's view, the practice was one of the worst abuses of the judicial system by the authoritarian Mugabe regime. Then, in October, Swango had received the letter from the Lutheran Church, terminating his employment, a letter which also made no reference to any specific charges. Coltart recognized as soon as Swango showed in the letter that Swango's termination was improper under Zimbabwean law. An employer may fire an employee only if the employee violates a code of conduct registered by the employer with the Department of Labor. Menene Mission Hospital had no such code. Few employers in Zimbabwe do. Absent such a code, the Lutheran Church was within its rights to suspend Swango, but it had to apply to the Labor Ministry for an order terminating his employment, a procedure that would have given Swango an opportunity to respond. The possibility that he was a pawn in a larger political drama was a theme Swango mentioned when he met with Ian Lorimer. As he'd promised, Swango offered Lorimer a detailed explanation of what had happened, describing three patients whose deaths had been blamed on him. One, he said, evidently referring to Philemon Chipoko, was a diabetic who became ill after an amputation on a Friday afternoon. Swango had happened to be on duty that weekend when he died, but the man wasn't his patient. Chipoko actually died on a Tuesday. The second... Evidently, Margaret Joe was a woman experiencing severe bleeding after a miscarriage. Again, she was not Swango's patient, but had died while he was on duty. And the third account Swango gave was a highly abridged version of Edith Nguenya's death. Swango said Nguenya had worked for him, that he'd visited her socially, and that after she complained of abdominal pain, he'd insisted that she be admitted. But neither he nor Dr. Zashiri had been able to diagnose her illness before she died. Nurses unfairly suspected, he said, that he had given her a drug, which he denied. Because he was a white doctor, he said, he was being made a scapegoat for every death in the hospital. Swango's account made selective use of the facts, and naturally Lorimer had no way of knowing that he had already told inconsistent versions of the same stories to the nurses denying any injections, and the police, claiming he had injected water. Lorimer and his colleagues at Empilo found Swango's account plausible, though Lorimer did think it odd that none of the doctors at Manene had been able to diagnose Inguenya. Mike Cotton, another resident at Empilo, said he'd known two Dutch doctors, a husband and wife team who had worked at Manene for two years and then left when something went wrong so there was obviously some precedent for trouble at Manene. But Lorimer did quiz Swango about the matter. "'Did you do anything you shouldn't have?' he asked on one occasion. Swango emphatically denied it, adding that, "'No doubt can be cast on my management of patients.' "'Did you clash with anyone?' Lorimer asked. 
No, I got along very well with everyone. Finally, Lorimer asked him, Were you on drugs? No, of course not, Swango answered, laughing at the suggestion. Even more persuasive than Swango's denials was the fact that David Coltart had taken on his case. Lorimer, Oliver, and other doctors at Impilo held Coltart in exceptionally high regard, and given Coltart's reputation for integrity, believed he would not have accepted the case unless he believed Swango was being persecuted. So when Swango said he'd like to practice medicine again at Impilo, Lorimer and others on the medical staff were, for the most part, enthusiastic. Lorimer went to Impilo's director, Dr. Chaibva, and argued that Swango should be hired despite having been dismissed from Menene. Impilo was desperately understaffed, and even if Swango couldn't handle everything, at least the other residents would only have to be on call every fourth night rather than every third. Swango was better than no doctor at all. Dr. Oliver, too, urged Chaibva to hire him. Finally, Swango himself went to Chaibva and said he would be willing to work without pay if the hospital would provide living quarters. Chaibva asked him what had happened at Menene, and Swango told him he didn't get along with church officials. But Chaibva said he'd have to get some kind of explanation from Menene. The next day, Chaibva called Zashiri, saying that Dr. Swango had volunteered to work at Impilo and that the hospital was short of staff. Zashiri was silent, which Chaibva found odd. Finally, Zashiri said, If I were you, I would not employ him. Why not? Chaibva asked. Again, there was a pause. It's under investigation, Zashiri said. Chaibva again tried to get an explanation, but Zashiri would say nothing more, repeating only that if it were up to him, he would not hire Swango. Despite this admonition, Chaibva made no further inquiries about what had transpired at Manene. He assumed, as his staff doctors had, that the problems had arisen from disputes over religious doctrine, not medical matters. And in any event, Swango's license to practice medicine was still in effect. Chaiva restored Swango's hospital privileges, and Swango took up his duties at Impilo. He began living in a room that had been used for residents when they stayed at the hospital overnight. It had a private bath and a separate entrance, and it also provided immediate and discreet access to the hospital wards at any hour of the day or night. By actually taking up residence in the hospital, Swango could now reach virtually every patient without being noticed by other members of the staff. In no time, it seemed, Swango resumed his congenial life in Bulawayo, the weekly prayer meetings at the Presbyterian Church, the volleyball and table tennis games, the visits to the Lorimers and the Myrtles. He even babysat for Lorimer's infant daughter, Ashley. People thought it laudable that he was willing to work without pay at Impilo. He threw himself into his job, carefully writing down the full names of all his patients so he could greet them by their first names. He became an advocate for patients' rights, arguing, for example, that people were having to wait too long before having operations once their conditions were diagnosed. Though they had been curious when he first arrived, no one now thought it odd that Swango, who could presumably go anywhere and earn a handsome living, was working without pay and living in a room in the hospital. But word of the mysterious deaths of Manene, already widespread in the Imbarangwa region, 
inevitably reached a wider audience in Bulawayo. In mid-January, a local newspaper, the Sunday News, ran an unbylined article with the headline, Expat Doctor Experimenting on Patients, the first published account of Swango's activities in Africa. The article read, An expatriate doctor at a hospital in Emberingwa is alleged to have been experimenting with some drugs on patients, resulting in the death of three of them, the Sunday News has learned. The doctor, who is white, has since been relieved of his duties, and it is reliably understood that he was arrested by members of the Criminal Investigations Department and is still in the country, helping police with investigations. Sources said the doctor was using drugs imported from his country on patients, especially women. Three people died as a result, but the Sunday News could not establish whether the deceased were all women. Officers from the CID have carried out their investigations as far as Gueru Central Hospital. Though there weren't many white doctors in Imberengua, the article didn't mention names or even the doctor's nationality and was both sketchy and inaccurate. It didn't alarm Lorimer and the other doctors at Impilo, who were already aware of Swango's dismissal, nor were there any follow-up articles. Then one evening Lorimer's mother phoned him from Harare, where that day she had had lunch with someone who worked in the Ministry of Health. When Mrs. Lorimer mentioned that her son was a resident at Impilo Hospital, the health official had told her about an American doctor who had interned there who had done some terrible things at Manene Hospital, including administering poisonous injections. Mrs. Lorimer had immediately recognized that the doctor must be Dr. Swango, Ian's friend. I don't believe it, Lorimer told his mother, dismissing the stories as preposterous rumors. It's all political, and he's being framed. He insisted that he knew Swango well enough to trust his instincts, and his mother seemed satisfied. Still, her last words to him in the conversation were, Be careful. Beware. The next day Lorimer did say something to Swango to the effect that there were rumors he had injected people at Manene, which was odd since doctors generally don't administer injections. Did you ever give injections? Lorimer asked him. Did you ever experiment with poisons? Swango seemed shocked and genuinely puzzled. No, he said, shaking his head emphatically, adding only that he had occasionally administered intravenous antibiotics because some of the nurses were nervous about doing it. But the Iranian doctor, Mezbah, was also continuing to raise concerns about what had happened at Manene, based on second-hand accounts he was hearing from the nursing staff. Finally, Mike Cotton said he'd go to Manene and investigate himself. When he returned, he said rumors were running rampant. Swango was being blamed for scores of deaths, even of patients who died while Swango was doing his internship at Impilo. This was obviously preposterous, and it undermined all the claims against him. Thus, continuing reports about Swango's activities paradoxically seemed to strengthen the sense that he was a victim of anti-white prejudice. This was reinforced by Swango's demeanor, his enthusiasm for practicing medicine, the care that he bestowed on his patients. The other doctors at Impilo trusted their own judgment as to medical matters, and those who were white feared that the same prejudice that had apparently been aimed at Swango might easily be turned against them. Thus, other pieces of a puzzle for which the solution would later seem obvious made little or no impression on them.
Even the sudden rise in unexplained deaths at Impilo that coincided with Swango's move into the hospital. One of Lorimer's patients was a man in his late thirties who needed emergency surgery for an incarcerated hernia, a dangerous condition in which the herniated tissue cannot be pushed back into place. The patient was brought into the operating room at 2 a.m., and Lorimer had completed the surgery two hours later. The procedure posed no complications. Indeed, Lorimer thought it had gone exceedingly well. At 5 a.m., the patient was dead. Swango wasn't involved with the patient, but he was in the hospital that night, and along with Lorimer expressed bafflement at the sudden death. A post-mortem was conducted, but no cause of death could be established. A few days later, a patient was admitted with burns to the esophagus and stomach. He had swallowed hydrochloric acid in an apparent suicide attempt. He was placed on a fluid diet and, a week later, seemed to be recovering. Lorimer decided that a feeding tube should be inserted through a small incision in the abdomen just below the stomach. It was a simple operation, and Lorimer had Swango assist him. The surgery was uneventful, and the patient seemed fine. Three days after the tube was inserted, the patient died. Again, no cause of death could be established. Several other doctors found similar mysterious deaths among their patients. But in the rush of hospital life, and with the hospital so understaffed, no one compared notes or spotted a pattern. But finally, Dr. Cotton raised a concern. A fourteen-year-old boy had been admitted to intensive care after suffering an auto accident. Swanga was on duty when the teenager was admitted and treated him. Indeed, trauma injuries were one of Swango's few strong areas of practice, and he'd recently been credited with saving the life of another teenager injured in a similar accident. Cotton subsequently oversaw the boy's progress and thought he was improving rapidly. Then the patient suddenly died. Given the nature of the rumors from Menene, it was perhaps inevitable that eventually Swango would be linked to the deaths at Impilo. I wonder if Mike was somehow involved, Cotton mused to Lorimer after discussing the mysterious case. But the two concluded it was impossible. Hadn't Swango just saved another teenager in similar circumstances? Despite the problems at Menene, the long hours at Impilo, and his cramped living conditions, Swango himself seemed happier than ever, delighted to be back at Bulawayo. Although he had been dating a black nurse at Impilo, he now seemed smitten by a thin, dark-haired young woman with two children, Leanne Payne, who had recently moved back to Bulawayo to live with her parents after separating from her husband in South Africa. He brought her to services at the Presbyterian Church, introduced her to the Lorimers and Myrtles, and spent extended periods of time with her and her young children. Swango would often speak to the Lorimers about what a difficult time Leanne was having. Her husband, he claimed, had been abusive. But her parents were strongly opposed to divorce and didn't approve of her dating Swango. But neither did they seem all that pleased that she had come back to live with them, especially her father, who often complained about the children, Swango said. At one point, Swango told Lorimer that he felt so sorry for her, given what she'd been through, that he had offered to pay for some therapy for her. He asked Lorimer for the names of some psychologists or counselors who might be able to help. Ian Lorimer wasn't sure that Leanne felt as strongly about Swango as he did about her. 
While she was obviously shaken by the apparent failure of her marriage and needed a friend, Lorimer thought that Swango often dominated her in conversation and seemed to want to control her movements, the very kind of relationship-threatening behavior that was discussed at the Lorimer's marriage seminars. Leanne mentioned this to the Lorimer's on occasion, and also that Swango talked too much, a problem the Lorimer's were familiar with. But these seemed minor complaints. Much as the Lorimer's enjoyed the company of Swango, they did find some of his tastes somewhat peculiar, especially for a professed Christian. On one occasion the Lorimer's rented the movie Pulp Fiction, because Swango said it had been a popular and critical success in America and had revived John Travolta's career. They invited Swango to watch it with them. The film was exceedingly violent and bloody, with a particularly intense sequence of sadomasochistic torture. Within ten minutes the Lorimer's were horrified and wanted to turn off the tape. But Swango was fascinated, insisted on watching, and said afterwards that he loved the film. They ascribed his enthusiasm to the fact that Swango was a film buff. He attended every film festival in Bulawayo. He seemed to know every classic movie, and devoured reviews of new films in Time and Newsweek. He watched Twelve Angry Men, the 1957 film about a murder trial, with the Lorimers, and proclaimed it a brilliant film, which he'd like to see again. He was also wildly enthusiastic about two films that became available on video while he was in Bulawayo. One was The Shawshank Redemption, a critically acclaimed 1994 film in which a young banker is unjustly sent to prison for the murder of his wife and his wife's lover. But his favorite, he often said, was Four Weddings and a Funeral, which he described with delight as A Sleeper, a film that Hollywood hadn't expected to do well, but had taken the movie world by storm. Nominated along with Shawshank Redemption for an Academy Award for Best Picture, the film features Hugh Grant as a young man whose own romance unfolds in the settings of his friends' weddings. But for many viewers, the film's most moving sequence concerned the sudden death and the funeral of another character. Violence and death often surfaced one way or another in conversations with Swango. One evening, Swango gave the Lorimer's copies of an article he had clipped from the South African edition of Reader's Digest and insisted that they read it. He continued to pester them about it until they said they had. The article, Stalking Evil, was an excerpt from a book by John Douglas, an FBI agent who, the article said, did nothing less than peer into the minds of serial killers and rapists. Douglas had been instrumental in developing psychological profiling as a technique in solving serial crimes, and as part of his work had interviewed numerous convicted serial killers. As Douglas wrote in the article, It used to be that most crimes, particularly violent crimes like homicide, happened between people who knew each other, and resulted from feelings that we can all experience, anger, greed, jealousy, revenge. But these days, more and more crimes are being committed by and against strangers. In recent years, a dangerous type of violent criminal has become more common, the serial offender. Because their victims are strangers and their motivations are complex, serial killers and rapists are the most difficult to catch of all violent criminals. The article surveyed a number of murders in which Douglas had been involved. While no clear psychological pattern emerged among the perpetrators, Several were above average in intelligence. All but one were white. Some were the children of a domineering mother and physically abusive father. 
and some had suffered chronic bedwetting as children. Ann Douglas insisted that no matter how peculiar they may be, all serial killers establish a pattern that can eventually identify them. No matter how such a serial killer throws us off his track, he's still going to give us behavioral clues to work with, whether he intends to or not, Douglas wrote. And, he concluded, I learned that even the smartest, most clever criminals are vulnerable. It doesn't matter how shrewd or experienced they are. And it doesn't even matter if they know about our techniques. They can all be gotten to. It's just a matter of figuring out how. Ian and Cheryl read the article, found it mildly interesting, and wondered why Swango had gone to such efforts to share it with them. Swango's reputation at Impilo was now so solid that on March 4th, Dr. Oliver, at David Coltart's request, wrote another glowing letter of recommendation for him, one that could be used in a suit against the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Coltart had still gotten no further explanation from the police. Eight months later, on November 16th, he received a letter saying that the docket had long since been completed and that Swango should await the decision of the public prosecutor. But no charges were forthcoming, and the December letter went unanswered. Coltart said that Swango himself could bring matters to a head by filing suit against the church, alleging wrongful discharge. While the Lutheran Church had told Coltart that under no circumstances would it re-employ Swango, he might be able to collect damages and back pay. Swango was immediately enthusiastic, saying he wanted to go forward with the suit to clear his name. On the one hand, Swango's reaction was reassuring, since it would have been foolhardy to proceed if there were any truth to the reports from Menene. On the other hand, Coltart at times wondered why Swango was going to such trouble and expense in an African country that was suffering so many problems and was not, after all, his native land. Before proceeding with the suit, he felt obliged to air these concerns with his client. "'Why bother with this?' he asked Swango when the two met to go over the complaint. "'Why not go back to the U.S.? You are a medical doctor. You could practice anywhere.' But Swango insisted he loved Zimbabwe and wanted to stay. And, almost shyly, he suggested a more important reason. He had fallen in love. Foster Dongozi, a reporter for the Bulawayo Chronicle, the local daily newspaper, shared an apartment with his cousin, who happened to be an orderly at Impilo Hospital. There's a white expatriate doctor living in the ward, he mentioned one evening. Dongozi found the claim hard to believe. Why would a doctor live in the ward? But his cousin insisted it was true, so Dongozi drove out to the hospital and approached several staff members. No one wanted to talk. So Dongozi asked his cousin to check the report. This time he not only confirmed the story, but added, It is believed he was chased from Menene after killing people, a story which he said was circulating widely among the hospital staff. He said the doctor's name was Swan. Sensing a major story, Dongozi returned to the hospital, again asking staff members if such a doctor was working there. No one would comment. But several gave him cryptic smiles, and one urged him to speak to the hospital superintendent. No one denied anything, and that suggested he was on to something. So Don Gazi went to the hospital switchboard and asked the operator to page Dr. Swan. 
The operator declined, saying he thought the doctor was out. But just then a voice said, Did I hear someone mention my name? Dr. Swan? Don Gazi asked, turning to a young blonde man wearing blue corduroy trousers and a white lab coat. I'm Dr. Swango, the man replied. Can I help you? By this time several people had gathered in the switchboard room and were curiously looking on. Don Gazi stepped out into the corridor and said, My name is Foster Don Gazi, and I'm a reporter for the Chronicle. Don Gazi noticed that Swango's eye began to twitch. I understand you're being investigated for a series of deaths at Manene Hospital. Swango's whole body began to tremble. He raised his right hand as if to ward off Don Gazi and began to back away. I can't answer that, he said. Talk to my lawyer. He began to run down the corridor. What's his name? Don Gazi shouted after him. David Coltart. Swango rounded a corner and disappeared. The next day Don Gazi called on Dr. Chaibva and asked him if Dr. Swango was living in the hospital. I don't know where he lives, Chaibva answered. Is he being investigated for killing people at Manene? I don't know that. Chaibva was obviously uncomfortable at the questions. I have heard stories about him, but it's not clear what the stories are. Why did you hire him? Don Gazi asked. Chaibva shrugged. There's a shortage of doctors. Don Gazi left, unsure whether he had enough for a story. But events quickly overtook him. That same week, Swango had gone to Chaiva and asked to be paid for his work. Chaiva had said that was out of the question. He was also annoyed, since he thought Swango was reneging on their agreement. In any event, Chaiva didn't have a discretionary fund of that kind. Now the press was asking about Swango, which meant the situation could erupt into a public scandal. Worried about his own potential exposure, Chaibva called the Ministry of Health in Harare. News that Swango was working in another hospital in Zimbabwe came as a shock to Timothy Stamps, the Minister of Health and Child Welfare. Stop him, Stamps ordered Chaibva. He told him to terminate Swango's employment immediately and remove him from the hospital's premises. He told Chaibva what had really happened at Manene, which left Chaibva in stunned disbelief. Chaibva summoned Swango to his office. Your services are no longer required, he announced, and told him to vacate the hospital. Swango seemed resigned to the news. He shrugged and said, Okay then left the office without seeking any further explanation. The following Sunday, March 24, 1996, the Sunday News ran a huge front-page headline. Ministry dismisses doctor. The story began. Harare. The Minister of Health and Child Welfare is investigating an American expatriate doctor for allegedly fatally injecting five patients at a district hospital in the Midlands province. Dispelling fears that the expatriate doctor was now operating in Mpilo Central Hospital in Bulawayo, the Minister of Health and Child Welfare, Dr. Timothy Stamps, said the doctor had been dismissed. He said the doctor only worked for a week at Mpilo, where, due to an acute shortage of medical practitioners, he had been employed after being dismissed by the ministry in October last year. 
The American doctor has been accused of deliberately and unlawfully experimenting with patients at Banane District Hospital in Mbarengwa by injecting them with unknown chemical substances which allegedly led to the death of five patients at the hospital. The article was much more extensive and accurate than the brief January account in the same newspaper. It alleged that the doctor had sneaked into patients' wards at night, that nurses actually saw him give the injections, and that a cocktail of drugs was discovered by police at the doctor's house in Manene. Still, the article did not name the doctor. Don Gauzy was upset that the Chronicle's sister publication had beaten him to the story. We've been scooped, his editor complained. Chapter 12 Lynette O'Hare excused herself from the guests at her champagne brunch to answer the phone. Born in British Burma, O'Hare had moved to Rhodesia as a child. Tall, with erect posture, she had a dignified manner, impeccable manners, and an accent that all spoke of her colonial British background and her training at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. She had the servants get out her best crystal and silver for the occasion, a farewell party for her daughter Paulette, who, at age twenty-seven, was leaving home and, like many other white Zimbabweans in recent years, moving to England. Paulette, O'Hare called, it's for you. Despite the festive trappings that morning in late March 1996, O'Hare was depressed that her only daughter was moving so far away. Her husband had died in 1990, and his hunting trophies, including the head of a water buffalo, hung on the walls. She'd become a certified public accountant, though her real loves were drama and speech, and she had taken a job at National Foods to support herself and their daughter. Now that Paulette was leaving, O'Hare would be left without close relatives at Bulawayo. Not that she was likely to be alone with time on her hands. She had two servants, Mary Chimway and Elizabeth Corredo, who lived in a cottage next to the swimming pool, and were in the house most of the day as well as a gardener who maintained the collection of flowering vines and plants in the walled gardens that surrounded her spacious house in Malandela, an attractive suburb just south of the Bulawayo Golf Club. O'Hare not only had her job, but was prominent in Bulawayo's influential Rotary Club and the Presbyterian Church, though she was contemplating conversion to Catholicism. She also gave private voice lessons, Still, she'd miss Paulette and her youthful circle of friends, who so often enliven gatherings at the house. When Paulette returned from taking the call, she seemed delighted. "'It's an American chap I know from Bible study,' she told her mother. "'Why don't you take him in?' Indeed, every Tuesday evening the Bible group joined hands to pray for one cause or another, and just the week before Paulette had asked everyone to pray that someone nice would come to live with Mum. Paulette had pretty much convinced her mother that the solution to her anticipated loneliness was to find a suitable lodger, and now a possibility had presented itself. The gardener admitted Michael Swango through the front gates a few days later, on March 31, 1996, and O'Hare met him at the door. She noticed a tick or squint that seemed to affect his right eye. She looked around to see what kind of car he drove, but there was none in sight. He introduced himself as Michael Swan. 
O'Hare invited him into the parlor, where the two sat down and Corrado served them tea. O'Hare was immediately reassured when Swan told her he was a doctor, a profession that was not only eminently respectable, but would assure her of steady rental payments. He said he had been working at Impilo Hospital and had come from America to help uplift the Africans, to do his part for humanity. She asked him his age, and he teasingly replied, How old do you think I am? Thirty-five, O'Hare guessed. Oh, no, he answered in mock indignation. I'm twenty-seven. That's Paulette's age, O'Hare exclaimed, delighted that she would have someone her daughter's age around the house. It seemed that in no time Swan had ferreted out O'Hare's interest in military history, something that even some of her friends in Bulawayo didn't know about. He told her his father had had a military career, and then mentioned several books in the field he'd read. O'Hare was captivated. She proudly showed him her own extensive library, each book carefully shelved and catalogued. He exclaimed over her works of English literature, and told her that he loved everything English. That, too, delighted O'Hare, an unabashed Anglophile. Terms of Swango's lodging were quickly reached. O'Hare would provide a room, breakfast, and lunch. Lizzie Corrado and Mary Chimway would clean, provide linens, do the laundry, and cook for him. In return, he would pay 800 Zimbabwe dollars per month. He would also be responsible for buying his own meat for the evening meal. O'Hare gave him a choice of bedrooms, and he picked the one that had been Paulette's at the rear of the house. O'Hare found him charming, delightful, articulate, and well-read. She could hardly believe her good fortune. It seemed that Paulette's prayers had indeed been answered. Swango arrived the next day with two metal trunks, a large duffel bag, and a backpack. Corrado and Shimway had moved Paulette's furniture out of the room Swango had chosen, but now he changed his mind, saying he preferred the room at the front of the house, directly adjacent to O'Hare's corner bedroom. The two women were annoyed, because they had to shift the heavy furniture again, and Swango neither offered to help nor even thank them when they had finished. Indeed, O'Hare's servants took an almost instant dislike to Swango, a feeling that hardened as he proceeded to give them orders, act rude and unfriendly, and never express any appreciation for their efforts. But none of this was apparent to O'Hare, who was so pleased with her new lodger that she began inviting him to share dinner with her. They would discuss books. Both turned out to be avid fans of political novelist Alan Drury, author of Advise and Consent, and current events, which they would typically discuss after watching the evening news while sipping a cocktail, often prepared by Swango. One evening Swango brought Leanne to the house, introducing her to O'Hare as his girlfriend. O'Hare found Leanne attractive and pleasant, though obviously lonely because of her failed marriage. O'Hare did notice, however, that Swango never seemed to be at work at the hospital, or anywhere else, for that matter. Corrado and Shimway reported that he spent most of his days in the house. "'Are you taking a leave?' she asked one evening. "'No,' he replied. "'I'm waiting for my work permit to come through.' This sounded plausible to O'Hare, who, like many white Zimbabweans, had been appalled by the decline in administrative efficiency since independence. She gave the matter little further thought, assuming the permit would arrive in due course. 
She hadn't noticed the article in the Sunday News, which appeared the same day as the brunch. Another reason that Swanga was home so often was that Leanne had curtailed their visits and outings. Her husband was coming from South Africa to visit the children, and she said she thought it best if Swanga wasn't around when he arrived. When he told Lorimer this news, Swango seemed incredulous. He couldn't believe that Leanne would banish him in favor of her husband, who'd been so abusive to her. Though he was upset, he remained confident Leanne would come to her senses, as he saw it, and resume their relationship as soon as the husband left. But during the visit, Leanne phoned to tell Swango that she and her husband might reconcile, as her parents hoped they would do. Although she didn't mention it, it is also possible that she or her parents had seen the Sunday News article and connected it to Swango. Whatever the cause, she said she couldn't see Swango again and broke off the relationship. When O'Hare saw Swango that evening, he was ashen and shaken. He could talk of nothing but Leanne, and seemed desperate. He even asked O'Hare to phone Leanne to tell her she was doing the wrong thing. But O'Hare demurred, feeling it would be pointless to get in the middle of what was obviously a tangled domestic situation. Besides, she didn't even know Leanne, having met her only on the one occasion. Swango seemed bitterly disappointed, as though O'Hare had let him down and retreated to his room. There he remained for eight days. He stopped shaving and looked increasingly gaunt and haggard. His curtains were drawn. He refused to emerge for meals, demanding that one of the servants bring them to him on a tray. When they knocked on his door, he opened it only slightly, before wordlessly taking the tray and slamming the door shut. He refused to allow Corredo and Shimway to clean the room, answering their knocks with a surly, Who is it? and What do you want? Finally, he told them, Don't worry about me. I'm only worried about my girlfriend. If he encountered O'Hare when he emerged to use the bathroom, he'd immediately retreat or rush to the bathroom and close the door. When O'Hare's nephew, Duncan, visited from South Africa, she insisted that Swango come out to meet him. He did so briefly, seemed hostile, and immediately returned to his room. When the Kerrs, other friends whom she wanted Swango to meet, came for drinks, Swango refused to greet them. O'Hare was so worried about Swango that when she had to leave for a visit to South Africa, she feared he might attempt suicide. She called a local organization, the Samaritans, spoke to a psychologist named Dave, and asked him to phone Swango in her absence. But Lizzie Corredo took a more wary view of Swango. She told O'Hare that she was growing frightened of him, and that he had treated her and Mary Chimway rudely. Once he threw a tantrum saying he didn't like the smell of floor polish. He continued to lock the two women out of his room so they couldn't clean, asking, Why are you so curious? What do you want to see? Swango insisted on the same breakfast every morning. Two fried eggs, four slices of toast, and a full kilogram of fried bacon. He was furious if he was served less than a kilogram of bacon, which Corrado thought was an exorbitant and costly amount. He also ran up electricity bills, always using a space heater while he bathed and frequently using it in his bedroom as well. Few homes in Bulawayo have central heating. When O'Hare complained about the high electricity bills, Swango denied using the heater, 
Corrado and Chimway were too frightened to contradict him, though they knew he was lying. Even more ominous, Lizzie had recently mentioned to her boyfriend that they were living with an American doctor, and the boyfriend had asked, Is he the one who killed people at Manene? Shocked, she replied that no, he worked at Empilo. But the question had made her wonder. When Corrado mentioned this to her employer, it reminded O'Hare of the brief article about an unnamed American expatriate doctor who was experimenting on patients. O'Hare had noticed the original January article, but had given it little thought since then. Now it dawned on her that she was living with a white expatriate doctor who had worked at Manene. And how many others fitting the description were there likely to be? I think he's the doctor from Manene Mission Hospital, Lizzie Corrado told her. Somewhat alarmed, O'Hare got on the phone to Ian Lorimer, whom she knew from church and as a friend of Paulette's. She also knew that Swango and Leanne had been socializing with Lorimer and his wife. Ian, she began, Swango is behaving very peculiarly. She explained that he'd been virtually locked in his room since breaking up with Leanne. Then she mentioned the article in the newspaper. Is he this expatriate? He is, Lorimer confirmed, but then quickly reassured O'Hare. It's all a put-up job. He explained that the nurses at Menene, evidently jealous of Swango's authority, had been spreading false rumors that he was killing patients. This struck a chord with O'Hare, who was of the belief that, as she put it, jealousy is a part of the African nature. One has to be very careful. She had read of a recent episode in Harare, in which a white anesthetist had been accused of experimenting on patients. The case was widely viewed as one of discrimination against white doctors. But what clinched the matter for O'Hare was that Lorimer told her that David Coltart was representing Swango, and that he was suing Menene Hospital. O'Hare thought the world of Coltart. It was inconceivable he'd represent someone unless he had a good case. Now she assumed that she knew why the newspaper hadn't printed Swango's name. It wouldn't dare to if he was represented by Coltart. Immensely relieved, O'Hare nonetheless took advantage of the conversation to get a message to Swango through Lorimer. "'He's upsetting my domestics,' she said. "'I wish you'd say something to him.' The next day, having spoken to Lorimer, Swango emerged from his isolation to join O'Hare at breakfast. He had showered and shaved. "'I understand you're worried,' he said reassuringly. When she explained that she was indeed upset by his recent isolation and state of mind, and then had read the newspaper article, he offered much the same explanation that Lorimer had. The nurses at Manene had grown jealous, he said. That same morning he apologized to Lizzie Corrado and Mary Chimway. O'Hare felt her heart go out to this poor, young, idealistic doctor who was being persecuted, and she chastised Corrado for her dark suspicions. If you were educated, O'Hare told her dismissively, you would understand. In Newton West, a Bulawayo suburb south and west of O'Hare's house, life lately hadn't been easy for Joanna Daly. Recently separated from her husband, Steve, she was trying to keep divorce proceedings amicable. But he had taken up with another woman, a situation made all the more painful by his proximity. He was living in the servant's cottage on the property 
while Joanna and the four children, all boys, ages two through eight, remained in the spacious ranch house with its kidney-shaped pool. With the often boisterous young children on her hands, Joanna couldn't think of getting a job outside the home, so she had begun a dressmaking business in the former sunroom. She could no longer afford the maids who once occupied the cottage, and had only a part-time gardener and handyman to help around the house. Her days seemed an unending sequence of cooking, laundry, and sewing, and she was barely making ends meet. Though Daly was attractive, slender, soft-spoken, with light reddish-brown hair, the idea that she might meet another man or go out on a date seemed remote to her. She hardly ever got out of the house, except to drive the children to school, and by nightfall she was usually too tired, even if she could have afforded a babysitter. So she was floored when Karen Kerr, Steve's sister, invited her to dinner late in June 1996, saying that there was a nice man she wanted Joanna to meet. Joanna told herself that she didn't want to meet another man, and certainly had no intention of remarrying. Still, she did her hair, put on makeup, and wore her most attractive clothing to the Kerr's dinner. And, much to her surprise, she immediately found the man in question good-looking and charming. He was a doctor. He had apologized for his earlier rudeness in failing to greet the Kerrs, and through O'Hare's persistence they had since become friendly. The Kerrs, too, embraced Swango's version of what had happened at Manene. They told Joanna he had been persecuted while working there, unfairly blamed for the deaths of several patients. Indeed, when they introduced her to Michael Swango, they joked that his nickname was Dr. Death. Swango seemed instantly attracted to Joanna. Showing the same unerring instinct he had with O'Hare, he quickly discovered that both her father and uncle were career officers in the British military, and then told her all about his own military upbringing. His father served as a colonel in the army in Vietnam. The family had moved frequently. His father was authoritarian and was absent from the home for long periods. All of this Joanna could relate to. Her own father had been harsh and domineering, often belittling her achievements, scoffing at notions of women's rights. He had made her feel that her only option in life was to marry, have children, and be a housewife, which was what she had done. As she put it, I'm used to being dictated to. But she needed to say very little. Swango kept up a monologue throughout the evening and never allowed his attention to stray. Her head was spinning from the attention. The next day, Swango phoned her at home, and Joanna invited him over that afternoon for a cup of tea. Her estranged husband happened to be in the house when he called, which Joanna mentioned, and Swango said he didn't want to have to deal with him. But she assured him that Steve wouldn't be present when Swango arrived. Overhearing the conversation, her husband did go into a jealous tirade, and Joanna later suspected him of spying on Swango's arrival. Swango came for tea and stayed for hours. He asked Joanna how old she was, and when she said she'd be twenty-eight in November, told her he was the same age. He talked about what a committed Christian he was, citing his attendance at the Presbyterian Church, at Bible study, and at the Lorimer's marriage seminar. He even showed her a pamphlet on Christian marriage that he'd been studying. Daly was a bit nervous about such sudden talk of marriage, but she was impressed by his seeming earnestness and decency. 
By the end of the afternoon she felt all but overwhelmed by the handsome, attentive young doctor who had so suddenly brightened her otherwise bleak life. Soon Swanga began spending nearly every day at Daly's house. She'd pick him up at Lynette O'Hare's in the morning when she drove two of the boys to school and take him back when she picked them up at the end of the school day. Often he would regale her with stories, especially of Mrs. O'Hare, whom he ridiculed as a fussy English aristocrat, always worrying that he was touching her things. He told Daly he was convinced O'Hare had commissioned the servants to spy on him. Swango would plan excursions for the two of them and the children, picnics, for example, or outings to a game park. He was a fitness buff and would sometimes go jogging in a West Virginia mountaineer's sweatshirt. He wouldn't eat sugar and fretted about getting enough fiber in his diet. Increasingly often, Joanna would prepare dinner for him, and he would stay with her for most of the evening. He told her how much he'd loved four weddings and a funeral, and when she said she had a VCR, he got a copy of the tape and they watched it together. Swango seemed especially to enjoy the part where the Hugh Grant character leaves his prospective bride at the altar in order to marry his real love, Andy McDowell. Daly came to realize that death and marriage were Swango's favorite topics. Swango continued his volleyball, table tennis, and badminton games, usually without Daly, but the two socialized with the Lorimers or visited the Kerrs or other friends of Joanna. One afternoon Swango took her to meet his landlady, and O'Hare served them tea by the pool behind the house. But Joanna felt somewhat intimidated by O'Hare, whom she deemed to come from a higher social class than her own. And on the many other occasions when she picked Swango up or dropped him off at the house, she stayed in the car or remained outside the gate. Although Swango was talkative and sociable, most days he preferred to work alone in Daly's living room while she worked on her sewing. He always seemed to be scribbling in notebooks, doing some kind of writing, but he made it clear that he didn't want Daly to pry into his activities. Given how upset he was that O'Hare's maids were spying on him, Daly respected his privacy. She wouldn't go so far as to say she was in love with him, let alone that she would marry him, but the relationship blossomed into romance. Although Swango never spent any money on her or bought her gifts, neither had other men in her life, and she recognized that as a missionary doctor he was unlikely to have much money. After the emotional trough she had been in with her husband, she was flattered by Swango's affection and attention. While he never asked her in so many words to marry him, he often discussed the subject, saying how much he would like to be married, and leaving little doubt that she was his choice for a wife. Daly felt better about herself than she had in years. The gay rights movement is changing everything. Now I'm going to tell you a story that I've shared with only a few close friends and never before publicly. It is not an easy story for me to tell, but it is an important one, maybe the most important defining moment of my life. My father was beloved by everyone who knew him. He was a man of passion and conviction and great zest for life. He left what seemed to secure a job with International Harvester to work in the fledgling and risky world of broadcast television. He loved his work and I idolized him and hoped to earn his respect and approval. But in one important respect, we were estranged. It may seem odd to you that for someone who has dedicated his career to finding the truth, 
I was very re- slow to reveal that tr- truth about myself to him. I feared his disapproval, even rejection, and I'm not sure that's something I could have endured at an early age. Psychologists tell us that all children deserve the unconditional love of their parents. Few of us actually experience it, and we spend the rest of our lives seeking it. I desperately wanted to believe that my father loved me, so I said nothing. We lived in an extended state of don't ask, don't tell, which was not only stressful, but eventually came to seem to me fundamentally dishonest and unloving. And so I took a deep breath and told him and my mother that I'm gay. My mother cried. My father said he loved me. And then he said he could never condone what he considered an immoral lifestyle. No partner of mine would ever be welcome in his home. We argued about this many times, but his position only hardened. He was a man of deep principle and conviction, and I'd never known him to admit error or change his mind about something so fundamental. Despite his words of reassurance that he loved me, this did not feel like love. Some years later, I met Benjamin Weil, who worked in public health and had just returned from years fighting the AIDS epidemic in Africa. After being together two years, we invited our friends and family to a commitment ceremony in the garden of our farmhouse in upstate New York. We mailed an invitation to my parents. They never responded. A Presbyterian minister presided. The non-denominational ceremony was blessed by his congregation. A string quartet played. Everyone cried. And we had a dinner and dancing under a big tent. My father later told me that receiving that invitation felt like being kicked in the stomach. My parents' absence was a cloud over that otherwise perfect day, and a chorus of my friends urged me to cut my father off, to not condone his intolerance any more than he would condone what he considered my immorality, if for no other reason than to protect myself from further hurt and disappointment. Another defining moment was upon me. I gave this strategy considerable thought. I was angry. At times, I thought he deserved to be punished. But I couldn't get past a simple question. If I hoped for unconditional love from my father, then didn't I hope him unconditional love? And not in return for anything, because wouldn't that be conditional? My thoughts took me back to Professor Eigenbrod's incredible course at DePauw in the New Testament. Did Jesus ask for unconditional love? Or did he give it? And so I tried. I put aside my anger, and I did my best to love my father as I hoped he might love me. We stopped arguing. We spent many joyous times together. And as he gradually lost his eyesight, and then his heart deteriorated, I was at his side. Eventually, he moved into a nursing home and hospice care. I figured he had days to live. One evening, I arrived for a visit, and we were alone in his room. He said he'd been looking back on his life, and he realized he had made a terrible mistake. I should have attended your ceremony, he said. I was proud and stubborn, and I was part of a different generation. But I don't have any excuses. 
I don't know if you can ever forgive me. By now he was crying and I was crying and I said that I had forgiven him many years ago. That night I experienced what unconditional love feels like. When I came into his room the next morning, he asked me if I had my cell phone with me. He asked me to get Benjamin on the phone and then he took it away from me. I want you to know that I couldn't love you anymore if you were my own son, he told him. And even though his body was failing and he was in a nursing home, I've never seen my father happier than he was during those last days. Context of White Supremacy, Catherine Massey Book Club. First audio segment all done. We'll pick up on the second audio segment. Uh, Acquiescence by habit. She didn't ask Swango many questions. That's talking about daily. Uh, We're still in chapter 12. Number to dial if you have thoughts, observations, 605-313-5164. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate one bit of extra information that would be helpful. I just said pound, so they mentioned <clears throat> that Swango demanded from the Negro servants in Zimbabwe, I need a full kilogram of swine bacon. They said, wow, that's a lot. You know, that's what in the world? And he said, if you didn't get a full kilogram, he'd wig out. I said, how much bacon is a kilogram? That is two U.S. pounds of swine. I'm not even on the price component of it, which I guess is exorbitant. But just, wow, my arteries, every, I mean, what? I thought they said he was a fitness buff. How do you eat two pounds of of bacon every day. I could die. The number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. <laughs> Press star 61 if you would like to participate and it's not like he's eating this with anybody this is all for me a full pound of bacon I can't even my header the other conversion so the rent that he agrees upon with this British white woman suspected white supremacist Miss O'Hare he's she's lonely her children empty nester she he's going to pay $800 Zimbabwe per month. I had to go get the conversion to figure out exactly how much is that. That is $2.21 US. $800 Zimbabwe is two, as in one, two. $2.21 U.S. 
Now I had to hear that and then go back and look to see like, wait a minute, what what all do you get for this for your two dollars and twenty one cent? What all do you get exactly? Uh like let let's let's go back and get the, the arrangement. So the terms of Swango's lodging were quickly reached. O'Hare would provide a room, breakfast, lunch, Lizzie Credo and Mary Chimwe negro females would clean provide linens do the laundry and cook for him in return he would pay two dollars twenty one cents u.s per month and you can use uh u.s currency in zimbabwe apparently so i mean legit you could have just dropped like what is that not even a benjamin that's a franklin right isn't it uh what's on the twenty dollar bill that's andrew jackson you could drop one jackson you could drop. In fact, you could take care of it all with a little extra because I'm going to use a lot of heat. You could drop one Jackson and one Lincoln. That's a five dollar bill for folks outside the U.S. One Jackson, one Lincoln. That's a room and board for the whole year. Make sure my back, my two pounds of bacon every morning. I'm going to use extra heat and get on out of here and be surly every day that I want to. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, man. What does it mean to be white? Email untiljustice at gmail.com untiljustice at gmail.com Let's see. I'll do one email and or one report really quick. Let's see. Um, Let's see. I'll do one report. I mentioned Foster Dongozi previously. He wore I mentioned it online. He was mentioned directly in the book this week quoted he was scooped they said but he redeemed himself and carried on through uh, the late great Foster Dongozi passed away in 2020 uh, and they had lots of articles appreciating his life's work I'll share one and then we'll get to some of the folks who wrote in and callers uh, so this is from the Chronicle, same newspaper that's, well, I don't think it's been mentioned yet. This is the Chronicle in Bulawayo, same city, though, in Zimbabwe. Uh, this is from December 27, 2020. Uh, Dr. Swango, chubby, commander, booty Vu, booty foster, all these were names of the late journalist, friend, and former workmate Foster Wulindalea Dangozi, my apologies, who passed on in Harare last Wednesday at the age of 48 after more than a quarter of a century's service to the profession of journalism. I had the privilege to share the Chronicle newsroom daily with Foster for a good five years, having known Foster through his numerous bylines in Chronicle, while I was still an aspiring journalist, I got to know the real Foster Dongozi in May 1996 when I arrived at Chronicle as an intern from Harare Polytech's Division of Mass Communication. Quite an intimidating experience it felt as a journalist then were demigods, especially those who worked for major news media like Chronicle. It was a star-studded but very lean news desk. There was Foster Edwin Dubay, late Paul Nkala, late Admori Tushuma, Arnold Mtume, Tumelso Makure, Herbert Mutgui, and Clayton Peel, thank goodness, was the news editor. Costa Mazzini, Gif Chata, and Zabusi Nluvu were our photojournalists at the time. After a brief 
orientation, Pew ushered me into the newsroom to introduce me to the rest of the team. Foster stood up as to showcase his imposing build and box-cut hairstyle. Goes on to give some of the intro. I'll skip through some of that part. All right. Part that concerns us. Uh, Foster had no enemies inside and outside the newsroom. He respected colleagues and authority alike. He was our big brother, and we called him Booty Foster or Booty Woo. Many a times, the editors and we had old school editors then would come out of their offices to say, quiet boys, usually it would be Big Foster bursting into laughter when we were sharing notes about the juicy stories and rumors of the day. Yet he remained a serious, focused, and successful journalist and later trade union leader as Secretary General of Zimbabwe Union Journalists, Z-U-J, a position he held at the time of his death. Those who followed news towards the turn of the millennium will remember the story of Dr. Michael Swango, an American medical practitioner whose nefarious medical antics earned him notoriety in jail in the U.S. following an investigation by none other than the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigations. Somehow, Foster picked up the story on international news and later discovered that Dr. Swango had once worked at the Lutheran Church-run Menene Hospital in Merwingwa. Off he went and camped there talking to doctors, nurses, and locals about Dr. Swango until he consolidated a gem of a story on how Dr. Swango had administered suspicious drugs on patients, some who died as a result. Foster went down to the hinterlands of Moringua to talk to survivors and victims of Dr. Swango's evil medicine. He even pinpointed the graves. And the story started rolling in, and all of us were proud of Foster in our local paper that was making international news. News travels fast, and the FBI came down to Moringua and exhumed some of the bodies, and tests were done as part of the probe against Dr. Swango. This is a major story. Only me and only me can bring the FBI to Zimbabwe. Big Foster would occasionally remind us at times up to five times a day. Foster was proud of his work and confident of his ability in the newsroom. Uh, let's see. For days, weeks, and months, Foster frequented Moringua as he uncovered more shenanigans by Dr. Swango. As a result of his Dr. Swango stories, we called Foster Dr. Swango, and he liked it, but he was happiest when we called him FBI. I am reminded of one day when our assistant editor, Jonathan, man, Mapinduka called out for Foster and he was nowhere to be seen. Where has he gone to? Mapinduka asked. He has gone to Marwingwa to follow up on Dr. Swango's stories. One of us replied, the problem with Foster is that when he gets a good story, he doesn't want to leave it alone. Mapinduka yelled. And I'll stop there. They go on to some of his other work uh, in celebrating his life's work. Uh, they even point out his uh, call of duty to support the albino population in Zimbabwe. People, not squirrels, you know. Uh, but appreciate black journalists all over the world. Uh, and Foster Dangozi, again, I'm going to try and see if I can get some of his reports to see, you know, how did he describe all of this? Does he include the allegations of reverse racism? Like, all of that. But the late Foster Don Gozi. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> get one email and then we can nab folks. Uh, get their thoughts. Uh, I will add 
I made sure to include the commentary where James B. Stewart explains that he, about one of the definitive moments of his life with his father and all of that, because as I said, this is the second time this year we are reading a book, white male author publicly identifies as gay writing about white mass killers and fawningly so question mark all this you know attractive and sexual prowess and all of that Mm. and even as I said now I am not doing this to be crass I said that before I knew anything about Mr. Stewart's uh, sexual classification or orientation as they say I said immediately, dang, why does this book start off with this white man putting a needle in the rectum of a black male? Why is that the jump off? And then to have that come back up again, like, oh man, yeah, that would bring many thoughts to mind. We'll share a tidbit. Uh, One of the folks who wrote in, then we'll get to folks who dialed in. Uh, Email one, greetings, Gus and callers. With all the talk of hair, healthcare, and death, a random thought came to mind. Several years ago, I learned about the genetic disorder called Minky's Kinky Hair Syndrome. The use of the term kinky struck me at the time as maybe a racist slur for obvious reasons. I actually saw a child with the syndrome. Interesting, the suspected racist would use a pejorative for black people's hair in a syndrome which primarily occurs in white children that results in mental retardation and early death. You can see pictures of children with the hair on the web. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. Chapter 11, David Coltart, who we did hear briefly in the audio, uh, Very Scary People, uh, tall, slender, sandy-haired, articulate, oppressive regime of Robert Mugabe, more fawning over a fellow suspected racist by the author. The people most to blame for Robert Mugabe are racist white supremacists. Have we heard him identify anybody as black as attractive, handsome, beautiful? Just the thought. Number two, how different the brush culture Swanger replied that since he was coming to darkest Africa, he had brought a selection of drugs. In other words, he knew Swanger was going to have a tough time dealing with all those savages. Darkest Africa? What? What? Number three, uh, case of reverse discrimination against a white American doctor, anti-white discrimination against Swango. Coltart's view, the practice was one of the worst abuses of the judicial system by the authoritarian Mugabe regime. Oh, the horror of the oppression of those poor white folks. This section is just sickening. This is pretty typical of the way that people talk about Mugabe even after his passing, uh, the way that he's been talked about. This book was published right at the millennium, so for the last quarter century, that he is still talked about in this way, uh, no count, oppressive, evil, dastardly, melanated Mugabe. Four, Lutheran Church was within its rights to suspend Swango, but it had to apply to the labor ministry for an order terminating his employment. Swango is not a citizen of Zimbabwe, so do the laws apply equally to him? Oh, I forgot, it does not matter, he has blonde hair, and blue. I like for real. Why can't his like uh, passport and visa situation just be revoked? Like beat it. You know, we don't even just beat it. <laughs> Why can't it just beat it, man? Uh, five. Zashiri would say nothing more, repeating only that if it were up to him, he would not hire Swango. In any event, Swango's license to practice medicine was still in effect. 
Shabba restored Swango's hospital privileges and Swango took up his duties at Mpilo. At the very least, wait until the Attorney General's report comes out. Just tell Swango for safety issues, we will wait for the AT's report. I doubt if Coltart would have supported a non-white doctor given the same issues as he had for Swango. I still blame Coltart the most in this situation with all his reverse discrimination nonsense. Like, real talk, how fast are people to racism? Oh, yeah, that's what it is. Racism. Yep, yep, yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what it is. Yep, yep, yep. I just can't, I can't fathom that. Like, and in this environment, like immediately, that's what it is. The Negroes here, they just hate whitey. Now, Richard Pryor did, <laughs> but that was 25 years ago. I just, I, you gonna have a hard time. If that is the case, then we need to all go to Zimbabwe, like right now, immediately. If that is the case, they'd have to show me. Let's, let's go for a visit. Number six, Sunday news, running unbylined article with the headline expat doctor experimenting on patients the first published account of swingo's activities in africa experimenting i wonder why the word that word was chosen maybe less inflammatory i don't know killing maybe maybe that's maybe that's it right in terms of libel we don't want to say he was killing because we can't prove it and that sort of thing he hasn't been charged with killing so yeah we can say experimenting right that way we're not saying that he's killing and i don't know i guess yeah that's it seems like saying that you experimented with someone is not as serious as saying that they killed someone or accused of killing someone because even that isn't the case at this point he hasn't been charged so yeah maybe that was the case uh seven continuing reports about swango's activities paradoxically seemed to strengthen the sense that he was a victim of anti-white prejudice. Other pieces of a puzzle for which the solution would later seem obvious made little or no impression on them, even the sudden rise in unexplained deaths at Impilo. Being white is like a cheat code in a video game metaphor. You always have a chance to win no matter how many points you are down. Metaphor, for sure. Number eight. Swango himself seemed happier than he had been dating a black nurse at Impilo. He now seems smitten by a thin, dark-haired young woman who, with two children, Leanne Payne. So he ditched that old black bang for a nice, thin, white woman. That would seem to be the case now. Given what they said in Very Scary People, I would want to know, did he poison all of them? Leanne Payne said, dang, I was getting those headaches and feeling groggy and all that and they tested my hair and bang did he poison the black female too <laughs> let's see nine violence and death often surfaced one way or another in conversations with swango article stalking evil peer into the minds of serial killers and rapists Ian and Cheryl read the article, found it mildly interesting, and wondered why Swango had gone to such efforts to share it with them. Swango seems to be mocking people. I can give these idiots all the indirect signs that I am a murderer, and they just don't get it. That is a trait I think many uh, mass murderers, serial killers, they engage, even racists, they like to mock non-white people as they mistreat us. But that was even Rev and Vodka. I think they went when they got the... Uh, Divergent program, uh, diversionary program. They wrote R and V for their initials, Reb and Vodka. They put that on the 
board. They did all those papers about uh, killing and having on their trench coats and all that. You do a lot of kind of telegraphing where you're almost kind of bragging like, man, we told you all, you know, what we were going to do. We said it. We made it so plain. And, you know, hey, I'm telling you, I'm a killer, natural born killer. We told you, told you, man. Uh, Let's see. Chapter 12. Lynette O'Hare, erect posture, she had dignified manner, dignified, impeccable manners, and an accent that all spoke of her colonial British background. She had the servants get out her best crystal and silver for the occasion. Two servants, Mary Chimway and Elizabeth Corrado. Uh, this reads like a version of Rhodesian riding Miss Daisy. Pretty much. And see, they say colonial. Colonial is very different from racist, white supremacist, and that's totally what it is. Got the servants stealing everything. I thought they said they Zimbabwe is independent now. You chilling and got the servants and everything? Two, Swango had come from America to help uplift the Africans to do his part for humanity. I assume these are direct quotes from Swango or uh, the O'Hares and he was talking to them maybe he was got an opportunity to speak with them or they did an interview but uh, yeah maybe he I think it was in quotes last week when he said that I love the blacks when he came there I think that was in quotes too so number three O'Hare's servants took an almost instant dislike to Swango a feeling that hardened as he proceeded to give them orders act rude and unfriendly and never express an appreciation for their efforts but none of this was apparent to O'Hare not apparent or she did not find his behavior particularly inappropriate when dealing with slaves. Now that's facts. How nice am I supposed to be? Negros. That's what they are. The help. How nice am I? That's what you do. Yeah. You get, where's my whip at? Get my bacon, wench. Yeah. And all the rest that might come to that too. You know, get in here and, you know, do some sexual favors. That's, that's what slaves do. That's what colonialism is all about. Uh, O'Hare for O'Hare, who, like many white Zimbabweans, had been appalled by the decline in administrative efficiency since independence. Nurses, jealous of Swango's authority, had been spreading false rumors that he was killing patients. Struck a chord with O'Hare, who is of the belief that, as she put it, jealousy is a part of the African nature. Now, that was in quotes. Those lazy, shiftless Africans. Now, see, that's why I say, see, it, see, it just seems like. You all can talk all that if you want. Brag about your Negroness. Brag about you were born in the U.S. or wherever. At the end of the day, the people who are in charge of this here plantation called Earth. To me, it seems like Negras is Negras. Now, you can run around. We can run around. And hey, I'm an indigenous African-American. I am a proud African. I'm a proud indigenous Australian melanated woman, man. and other, You can get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Negras is negras. And I say that because they say the same thing that lazy negras. That's what they say about negras everywhere. They're lazy. Got to have a white man to pow, pop them upside the head with a whip to make them get my bacon. Pow, winch, I told you. Two pounds or one kilogram of bacon. So anybody here, do you eat? Two pounds of is that? Am I tripping on that? Like, is that just me? Does anybody? Do you eat two pounds? Has anybody ever? You sat down in one setting, and you ate two pounds of bacon by yourself. Just let me 
I'm, let me know. Let me know. Maybe I'm true. You can email too. Until justice at gmail.com. Five. Same morning, he apologized to Lizzie Corredo and Mary Chimwe. O'Hare felt her heart go out to this poor, young, idealistic doctor who was being persecuted. Thought she was talking about Jesus. And she chastised Corredo for her dark suspicions being niggardly. If you were educated, O'Hare told her dismissively, you would understand. That is in quotes. No way is she going to take the side of these savages over this blonde haired blue eyed white man who she hardly knows. She may even refer to these victims as being part of her family in quotes. And real talk, you're going to shake your finger in my face and tell me about being educated. Like real talk, you all, I'm sure before Robert Mugabe got here, I'm sure white people were not just running around making sure that all of the Negras had library cards and were had scholarships to go to the university and study so that they could be doctors and STEM experts. Like, if you don't get your, I ain't going to say colonial, if you don't get your white supremacist, white terrorist hind parts out of here. Praise Robert Mugabe. Six, though Daly was attractive, slender, soft-spoken, with light reddish brown hair how many times is the hair of a suspected racist mentioned in this text many many times and I don't think I've heard any black people's hair mentioned at all I'm not even getting to the attractive part just mentioned nappy kinky kitchen none of that none of that seven indeed when they introduced her to Michael Swango they joked that his nickname was Dr. Death they found this funny hey the med school students did man that's where we started at we ended the book next week that's where we started at remember that's why I was playing the James Bond they said (laughs) isn't it funny wouldn't it be hilarious if he was actually killing people like double O swangle (laughs) that's what they were doing come on Uh, nine she didn't ask Swango many questions he attributed his lack of medical job to reverse racism. These suspected racists clearly identified with all his complaints about being oppressed by these dark people. Facts. Facts. I lost my nine. Joanna felt somewhat intimidated by O'Hare, whom she deemed to come from a higher social class than her own. Swango is such a skilled con artist, giving the impression that he has this hybrid background. These class hierarchy distinctions are, of course, only applicable to racists, white supremacists. Indeed, indeed, he's such a liar that just I'm white. That's enough to get me in the door. I got it from here. I can lie and swindle and connive. And they get so much help, like, you give me an inch, man, I'm not going to take a mile. I'm to the moon, man, to the moon. Elon Musk, give me that space station. Ten, his fascination with, oh, didn't get that far. We will stop right there. Bing. All righty. Email address again, untiljustice at gmail.com. The number, 605-313-5164. The code, five six. Four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate anybody no shame I'm not here to ridicule I'm just trying to see maybe I'm the one that's not getting it correctly because maybe you're hungry in the morning has anyone here eaten two pounds of bacon 
at one setting by themselves. No sharing. This is not a family thing. You didn't give half of it to the dog. You ate two pounds of bacon by yourself. Please let us know. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Non-Clemson dad. Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Uh, so, Gus, yes, absolutely. You are tripping. It is 2.2 pounds of bacon, more than two packs a day from the grocery store's one-pound pack. Uh, yeah, and I've never, ever eaten that much bacon in one sitting. I, um, I really hardly eat bacon anymore, if any. And for the times I did, maybe about three or four strips, which would have probably amounted to maybe a quarter of a pound, maybe less. Um, but, you know, I'm speaking for myself. I won't speak for others. So let's see. A couple things that I was listening to as I was uh, listening to the book. Uh, reverse discrimination. People are quick to fight on the behalf of white, pe- white victims of discrimination while eschewing away black victims' claims of discrimination. Uh, you know, it's kind of sad to think that this white man can go into a country like Zimbabwe, um, be one of the probably, what, five white people in the entire country with the white savior complex, and because of it, they think that any discrimination against this man, um, um, the accusations must be true and therefore must be, uh, um, this man must be defended while I imagine whatever cause of um, discrimination that the black people inside the country would have um, levied against any white people were probably just simply ignored. Uh, let's see. Um, there seem to be quite a couple of pe- more than a couple of people who are willing to stand up, stand by Double uh, O Swingo. And, you know, has anyone heard the phrase um, doctors who are likable even when they're incompetent? are very unlikely to be sued, while doctors who are competent, but their patients might not like them, are very likely to be sued just because they might have made a mistake or not even made a mistake. And for whatever reason, I'm not personally understanding it, I, um, but Double O Swango, he seems to have the ability to come off as exceptionally likable, which is a scary thing in itself, considering all the harm that he caused in death. Let's see. Um, this book uses the word prosecution often. So, of course, the word prosecution is the idea of someone being wrongfully um, uh, wrongfully um, accused of a crime. And then if any, uh, any um, accusations or anything of the sort going in that person's direction makes them the victim, as opposed to it's very clear what this man is doing when people are willing to say something about it and that if the word for his content isn't um, persecution, it's um, prosecution, because clearly people are articulating that, um, yeah, we got sick, we got harmed, clearly a couple of people have died, Um, but for some reason, the word that seems to appear the most is um, persecution, and with that, I'll mute my line. Persecution in the book uh, seven times, or some form of it, persecuted, persecution, some form of it seven times uh, we we haven't even got to all of them yet more coming uh, other folks who dialed in with thank you strive for accuracy it's not even two pounds it's more than that so that's a few extra strips of bacon to gnaw on uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up proceed good evening may I be heard yes ma'am uh, 
Good evening, Gus and callers. It's Fresh Princess. So it seems as if um, Double O Swango is displaying all of the textbook characteristics of a malignant narcissist. He targets certain types of women. Uh, he builds his reputation based on other people liking him so that no one will like kind of believe that he's a bad person. And it just, it strikes me odd that it's taking so long for people to investigate, but they're keeping it like kind of hush hush. Like when the one doctor called to like kind of verify, Hey, did this guy work for you? And the gentleman didn't want to like say anything, but then he's like, well, if I were you, I wouldn't hire him. That's, that doesn't seem like it's good enough. Really. It's, it's like everybody was kind of covering for him. And part of me wants to believe that perhaps they were doing that because they didn't have definitive proof, but they had enough circumstantial evidence to say that this was a bad person. The other thing about that is uh, him sneaking in drugs. Like if that was his excuse that he brought drugs from America, like how did that even happen going through customs? and all of the other checkpoints where they're not going to let you come through with certain things unless you have clearances. So that excuse should have been, like, set off all types of red flags. Um, On the program last week, you commented that you didn't know that um, poisoning could cause mental confusion, everything like that. Well, um, Arsenic is a metalloid, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, So when you have, like, things like arsenic, lead, things like that, like, there's trace elements of that in just your everyday consumption, which is why it's measured in parts per million. But when it goes over a certain amount, that's when they say it causes harm. Like, think about lead poisoning. If there's lead in the water, then it causes, like, mental well, I don't know if you can say retardation or anything now, but it causes people to be like kind of slow and have uh, developmental issues. So think of it in that line. Um, Other than that, those are the observations that I had for this week. And I'll meet my line. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Still learning. Much obliged. Fresh, fresh princess. Uh, Yeah, the... uh... He probably was poisoning all of the girlfriends, even the folks that we heard about this week. Um, I say retardation. Um, it's a verb, retard, to delay development. I said retard. I don't think there's, I don't name call people with that. I say, uh, even for context of white supremacy, non-white people, we have been retarded. Just what I said about the Zimbabweans. I don't think before Mr. Mugabe was so-called in charge, I don't think they were just, hey, we are going to make sure that you all are properly developed. You are not going to be a retarded group of black people in Africa. No way. You're going to school and learning and STEM. And I don't think so. They like that. That's why she was chastised. That's why O'Hare was chastised. See, if you went to school, you wouldn't be so ignorant with your dark suspicions. You're retarded. See? Anyway, uh, he does get a lot of help. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, BF commentary, proceed. 
Hi, everybody. I will call her here. Speakerphone. Yeah, I got a couple of notes here with the reading so far. I had to look up Anglophile. Anglophile. What is that? A person who admires English, England, its people, cultures, language, and accents. Man, never heard of Anglophile before. And the person that he was renting a room from, um, she was sharing food with Swango. I had to take a note at that and be like, hmm, all right. And it was very interesting that the um, O'Hare, I think think the uh, renter was, that rented him a room, she was appalled, just appalled by how the, the country was being ran after independence, I, I, she couldn't take it. It was horrible. Worst. Leaving these blacks in charge. Ugh. Well, <laughs> seemingly in charge. Um, I know he was pretty mad at Leanne. Leanne decided to go ahead and stay with her abusive husband. Um, I also noted that Duncan O'Hare's maybe son, if I'm getting that right, came to visit, but Swingo could care less about that. Um, and the jealousy the jealousy is a trait of Africans. These Africans, oh, man, they are so jealous. I also noted uh, dark suspicions. Um, dark suspicions? Did, were you guys suspicious with your eyes closed? Or did they never turn on the lights because you had dark suspicions? And he's still lying about his, his age and his name. Um, dropping off the go, just going with Swain. And, um, oh, yes, of course, I've been Iowa. Got had a couple of appointments with some people. I went to, you know, sit by them um, since, you know, it's not good to let people go to the doctor by themselves, least of all black people. Um, I mean, not that it's not good. It's just not a good practice. You should always take somebody with you, like you, like you were saying, Gus. And I'm, I'm asking the doctors. You know, they're saying no. They hadn't even heard of Swango. Okay, these people are older than me. I'm 49 years old. Um, but yeah, I, I've asked two doctors in Sioux City, Iowa. And, yeah, they claim they never heard of them. So if we get some more um, appointments, I'm definitely going to keep asking. Somebody heard about this guy, Um, some white person. These are white doctors. And that's all all, uh, today, or that's all that I got for this section. And thanks for letting me speak. Yes, ma'am. Love it. Love it. Go hang out. If if a non-white person, they have to go doctor visit, just hang out. Be a witness, be alert, ask questions. You never know. That can do so much to just keep that person safe. Um, man, I, I'm going to go ahead and get to the second audio segment, but there's so many new, just to her point, that is a great question to ask. That, do you, have you heard of uh, Michael Swango? <laughs> See what they say? Like, that is brilliant. Um, but I mean, really, there's so many documentaries. I've played several. He's on Unsolved Mysteries. He was on America's Most Wanted. And there's so many books. This isn't the only one. And newspaper articles galore. Uh, I checked a newspaper report today for New York State. That's why I said you can check so many different states, Iowa and all over. The Observer, New York State. The article, VA patients plan $20 million lawsuit. Andrew Woods, 
black male veteran, we just passed Veterans Day, uh, said that Swango tried to do the deed with him as well. Got his black female wife, Darkus, sitting with him. This is in New York State. This is from 1993. When I saw this, I said, because he wasn't even mentioned in the book. Andrew Woods, we didn't even hear about this victim. And I mean, we couldn't hear about all his victims, but I mean, dang, how many of Swango's victims were black? Rena Cooper, Andrew Woods, all the folks in Zimbabwe, presumably, how many of these people were black? I know he killed white people too, but I mean, hey, and this is even one, this article came out in 1993. James B. Stewart had enough time, he could have included this one too in the text. I don't think I missed it. I'll go back and double check, but Andrew Woods is not in this book at all. $20 million lawsuit? Come on, man. Catherine Massey Book Club context of white supremacy audio segment to reverse i had no idea reverse racism was in the come on audio segment number two blind eye james b stewart acquiescent by habit she didn't ask swango many questions as he'd been with everyone else in buluwayo he was vague about his birthplace his schooling where he'd worked in the united states any geographic reference that might be traced he attributed his lack of a medical job to reverse racism, but otherwise said little about Manene or Impilo. Still, as the weeks went by and their lives settled into something of a comfortable routine, Daly learned a good deal about him, more probably than had anyone else in Buluwayo. He often talked about his father, a man he seemed to resent bitterly. He said Virgil had had a brilliant military career, but ended up dying an alcoholic. He told her that his father had kept a famous photograph of a Viet Cong soldier on his knees with a gun held to his head, the Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph Virgil had shown him years before. He also told her how, when he and his brothers were young children, his father would make them march in formation, salute, and execute his commands whenever visitors came to the Swango home. He said it was something he had always hated. When Daly said she didn't think it sounded so terrible, he angrily retorted, "'I don't think it's right.' Swango rarely mentioned his brothers, except for his older half-brother, who, he said, also despised their father and was the only one of their siblings he got along with. Nor did he refer to any friends, with one exception. He spoke often of Bertie Joe, a southern name, he said, belonging to his best friend. Bertie Joe was a medical specialist who traveled a lot, Swango told Daly, a description that fits Bert Gee the respiratory therapist in Atlanta with whom Swango often stayed after he left Stony Brook. But he never used Gee's real name, so Daly could never have contacted him had it occurred to her to do so. Swango described Bertie Joe as a big, powerful guy who was always very protective of him. If there's any trouble, Swango said, Bertie Joe would just pull out his big revolver. Joanna laughed at the image, thinking that this must be what life was like in America, where everyone carried guns. Swango often returned to the subject of his family. He said that he dreaded family vacations when he and his brothers would be installed in the back seat for what seemed like endless drives across middle America. He said their parents ignored them, sitting in the front seat, mostly in silence, smoking. He said he never detected any warmth in his parents' marriage, and that they rarely saw each other, even during the increasingly rare periods when Virgil was at home. Swango spoke with much more affection about Muriel, who he said had read to him as a child, 
typed all his school papers for him, and held a semblance of a family together. Still, he described his home life as a lonely one, from which he often sought refuge in books at the public library. He wistfully described a Christmas break when he spent every day alone at the library. Indeed, he remained an avid reader, especially of crime and detective novels, which he read constantly when he wasn't busy with his own writing. Sometimes he tried to tell daily the plots, but they sounded twisted and sordid to her, and she told him she wasn't interested. But one day Swango seemed unusually excited and said he wanted to write a book himself that he thought might be a bestseller. He insisted on telling her the idea. Someone is in town, he began, and there's a serial killer at large. Then someone else kills in the same way. Everyone thinks this person is the serial killer, but they're wrong. They relax, and ten years go by. Then the serial killer kills again, just for fun. Daly wasn't sure she ever quite understood the plot, but Swango seemed so excited that she bought him a large book of blank paper so he could begin writing the novel. Then there was his fascination with Ted Bundy. When Swango heard that a miniseries on Bundy's life was going to air on Zimbabwean television, he insisted on watching and taping it on Daly's VCR. Swango was riveted to the screen. He told Daly that he loved Bundy. You mean you loved the show? No, I love Bundy, he said. He was a genius. Swango took the tape and played it for the Lorimers. He called particular attention to the program's description of Bundy's mental state, which suggested that the normal Bundy was unable to recognize the abnormal state that coexisted in his mind. He showed a similar interest in Jim Jones, the charismatic religious leader of the People's Temple, whose nearly 1,000 followers committed mass suicide in 1978 by poisoning themselves in Guyana. If these incidents struck Daly as somewhat macabre, as they did, they hardly seemed cause for concern. Many people were fascinated by people like Bundy and Jones, she assumed, or there wouldn't be miniseries about them. And Swango's interest in murder was more than overshadowed by his sense of humor, his kindness, and his encouragement. She especially liked the way he could converse with her pet green parrot, comically imitating the bird's voice. At the same time, he said he felt bad for the parrot being confined in a cage, saying no one should be cooped up like that. He was also affectionate toward Daly's part Siamese cat, though he told her an odd anecdote about a cat he had once owned. He said he'd left the cat alone for a month with a supply of food, and the cat had thrived. "'But what about the litter box?' exclaimed Daly, aghast at the idea of the filth, knowing that cats abhor an unclean litter box. Swanga only shrugged and seemed amused by her reaction. Swanga also seemed concerned for the rights of minorities. One day he criticized the city of Los Angeles, where alcohol commissioners were allegedly harassing gay bars. He staunchly defended the rights of homosexuals. Daly was surprised at his view, saying that she thought homosexuality was wrong, and that in conservative Zimbabwe, most straight men would like to shoot gay men. Swango insisted that she was wrong, spent a good deal of time explaining homosexuality to her, and eventually persuaded her to change her views on the matter. He was even more forceful on the subject of women's rights, an unusual stance in Zimbabwe, he insisted that it was ridiculous for women to assume that they could only aspire to be housewives. He encouraged Cheryl Lorimer to pursue an interest in psychology. 
And at his urging, Joanna began reading some of Swango's medical texts, which she found surprisingly absorbing. Swango told her he thought she might have an aptitude for medicine. He urged her to go back to school, finish the equivalent of a high school degree, and study medicine. She was thrilled by the suggestion. No man had ever before suggested she was intelligent or encouraged any intellectual pursuits, let alone told her that she might have the ability to become a medical doctor. At times like this, Daly thought she might be in love with Swango. But at the same time, she knew on some level that the relationship might not last. She was well aware that there were things that Swango wouldn't share with her that kept him at a distance, such as his pent-up anger or frustration. He went through mood swings, which she could tell from his handwriting. When he was cheerful, his handwriting was open and rounded. When he seemed depressed, it became cramped and slanted, almost as though it was someone else's. When he was in a dark mood, Daly couldn't reach him. She found it better to leave him alone, writing furiously in his notebooks. There was also the possibility that he might soon find work and leave Zimbabwe altogether, even though he said he loved the country and wanted to stay in Bulawayo. She knew he was filling out applications for medical jobs in places like South Africa and Zambia. He mentioned a trauma unit in Johannesburg that he was especially interested in. Daly took out a post box in both their names so that he would have a mailing address to use on his job applications. Swango never said much to Daly about what had happened at Manene, or why he was having trouble finding medical work in Buluwayo, which was suffering from a shortage of doctors. Like the Kurs who had introduced him to her, she was vaguely aware that he had been falsely accused of malpractice of some sort, and that he was suing the Lutheran Church. But she didn't press him for any further explanation, and he didn't volunteer any. One day, however, she had what she considered a peculiar call from Karen Kerr who asked her how things were going with Michael. Joanna said they were fine. Just be careful, Kerr said. Why? Daly asked, surprised. You know, he had another girlfriend, and she dumped him, Kerr said ominously. Why? Is there anything else? But Kerr said she couldn't say any more. Daly mentioned this to Swango, and it seemed to irritate him. Everyone is gossiping about me, he complained. He seemed to want to go out less and less. Then, in late July, the Sunday News ran another article. Whereabouts of fired U.S. doctor unknown. The article said police were mum on the whereabouts of an American doctor who is alleged to have caused the deaths of five patients at Manene Hospital. It added, The American doctor is alleged to have administered fatal injections to five patients at the district hospital, resulting in their deaths. Five nurses from the hospital were summoned to Zvishevane to help with the investigations. Swango's name still wasn't mentioned, but Joanna knew it was he, and she raised the subject of the continuing press coverage. People just don't write all these stories out of nothing, she told him. You must have done something. Swango seemed shocked and annoyed at her suggestion. No, no, he insisted. They're just causing trouble. It's a nuisance. People are always hassling me. Are you sure? she persisted. You're not lying, are you? No, 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 he repeated, shaking his head emphatically. Although she had questioned him, Daly didn't doubt Swango. She trusted her intuition and her feelings, which told her he couldn't be guilty of murder, 
or a danger to anyone else. The first week of August, all four of Daly's children fell ill with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. She blamed the illness on the local water supply, which had been causing problems in the wake of a severe drought. She was getting them into her car to take them to the doctor when her husband emerged from the cottage and asked where they were going. She said the boys were sick. Why don't you have your doctor boyfriend take care of them? He asked in an insinuating tone. This infuriated her. She had never considered having Swango treat them. He wasn't a proper doctor, as she saw it, since he wasn't practicing, and in any event he wasn't a pediatrician. The children's doctor sent them home, saying they probably had a stomach virus. Though her hands were full with the sick children, Joanna still felt obliged to cook Swango's dinner that evening. She'd promised him fried chicken, as close as she could get to commercial Kentucky fried chicken, which he'd often said was his favorite food. Swango arrived that afternoon in an unusually good mood, asking after the children and offering to fix her a cup of tea. She was surprised he'd never offered to prepare anything for her before. That would be nice, she said, grateful for the kind gesture. Swango brought daily the tea, and she sat down and drank at least half of it, perhaps more. Then she went into the kitchen to begin preparing dinner. But after about ten minutes, she suffered a sudden attack of nausea. Excuse me, she said to Swango as she rushed to the bathroom and vomited. Then she lay down on the bed, weak and disoriented. But all she could think about was Swango's dinner. Conditioned over the years by her father and husband, she felt it her duty to fix a meal, no matter how ill she felt. She struggled to her feet, returned to the kitchen, and fried the chicken. She managed to get the food to the table, then sat down, saying she couldn't possibly eat herself. Swango paused before eating and looked at her with a searching gaze. Finally, he said, I can't believe you're doing this for me. Weak and nauseated, drenched with perspiration, Joanna did her best to stay at the table as Swango ate. But finally, she said, If you don't mind, I think I'll lie down. She returned to her bedroom and felt as though she blacked out. She remembered nothing more of that night. She spent the next day in bed and took several days to recover. Though she had never before felt so violently ill, she assumed she had come down with the same bug that had afflicted the children. Lynette O'Hare couldn't get over the change in Swango since he had met Joanna Daly. He seemed as he had when she'd first met him, sunny and talkative. She fussed over him and tried to encourage him in his medical career, despite the persecution she believed he was suffering. She introduced him to nice people she thought he'd enjoy, including Judith Todd, a prominent human rights activist, and a Catholic priest she held in high regard. He spoke to a class of children at the Catholic school about what it was like to be a doctor. It seemed Swango made a favorable impression on everyone he met. He rode O'Hare's daughter regularly, usually two or three times a week, lavishing praise on her and filling his letters with quotations from the Bible. He struck up a friendship with the Samaritan who had called him when Mrs. O'Hare feared he might attempt suicide. Swango continued to seek work as a doctor, but seemed to be growing discouraged. He applied for a position at the mental hospital, 
but its director, though lamenting what a waste it was that someone with Swango's skills was unemployed, said she could do nothing as long as the Ministry of Health maintained his suspension. Even though he was suing the Lutheran Church, O'Hara thought Swango should be more aggressive at vindicating himself. Why don't you go to the American Embassy in Harare, she urged him. Surely you have rights as an American citizen. But he argued that such a trip would be pointless, since he wasn't formally accused of any wrongdoing. O'Hare was also busy with a rotary campaign to eradicate polio. She urged Swango to volunteer at one of the stations where parents were bringing their children for inoculations. But Swango adamantly refused, saying, No doctor will go near me, given the accusations against him. O'Hare was nonetheless grateful to have a doctor in the house, since her own health had been declining precipitously. Though she had always had a strong constitution, she had been experiencing recurring bouts of severe nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, some of which kept her in bed for days. But Swango reassured her, telling her the symptoms were just a bad bout of the flu. Each time she fell ill, he gave her some medication and seemed solicitous and concerned about her welfare. While O'Hare was convalescing, she and Swango would watch TV and continue their conversations. He was passionately interested in anything having to do with O.J. Simpson, who had been acquitted the previous October of murdering his wife, and spoke often of how much he admired him. He seemed thrilled at the verdict, which puzzled O'Hare. "'Do you actually think he's innocent?' she asked him. He stared at her in disbelief. "'Of course not,' he snapped. He seemed almost as fascinated by the story of English serial killer John Reginald Christie, who was convicted of murdering eight people, including his wife and a baby, over ten years, ending in 1953. But before Christie was caught, another man, Timothy Evans, whose wife and child were among Christie's victims, had been tried, convicted, and hanged for the murders. Evans was posthumously pardoned in 1966. Swango told O'Hare the whole story and seemed especially to savor the fact that Christie had been able to deflect blame onto an innocent man. This same notion that the wrong man might be accused of serial murder figured in the suspense thriller he told Joanna he was writing. Swango often spoke of the incompetence of the police and other members of the medical profession. And Swango exhorted O'Hare, as well as everyone at the Bible study class, to watch the TV miniseries on Ted Bundy, professing his admiration for the handsome law student and exulting that no one had suspected him for so long. O'Hare had never heard of Bundy, but at Swango's insistence she watched the program. Under the circumstances, O'Hare found Swango's enthusiasm peculiar. "'In view of what you're suspected of, I wouldn't go around talking about serial killers,' she warned him after watching the show. Given his faithful attendance at the Presbyterian Church and his friendship with the Lorimers, she was also surprised by the irreverence of some of his comments. He often mocked participants in the Bible study class, especially Rosie Malcolm, the woman with the ginger hair he had once shown a romantic interest in, and would comment sarcastically, "'Guess what we prayed about today?' "'Why do you go?' O'Hare finally interjected. "'I like to mix with nice people,' he replied." On another occasion, Swango seemed so contemptuous of religion that O'Hare asked, "'What do you believe in?' "'I believe in God,' he replied. "'Do you believe in Christ?' He didn't reply. 
But O'Hare drew nothing of significance from these conversations, which were isolated, puzzling notes in a generally cordial relationship. She trusted her young lodger so much that she turned her car over to him. He would take her to work in the morning, pick her up for lunch, and return to take her home at the end of the day. That gave him unlimited mobility and freed him from having to depend on Joanna or other friends for rides. Only the servants, Lizzie Claredo and Mary Chimway, remained suspicious. One afternoon, Claredo was washing O'Hare's car as Swango stood watching. "'Are you sure it's clean?' he said as she finished. "'Yes, I am,' she replied, annoyed at the insinuation. "'Well, maybe I should wipe it with a white cloth,' he said. "'In jail, the security officers wipe everything with a white cloth to see if it's clean.' "'How would you know what they do in jail?' Corrado shot back. Swango looked momentarily flustered, then explained that jail was just like the army, and they'd done the same thing when he was in the army. But Corrado was suspicious. One day Swango offered Corrado and Shimway some empty plastic vials and asked if they wanted them. They said they did, but then thought the vials had a strange smell, so they threw them away. Another time, Corrado suspected that Swango had tampered with the peanut butter she kept in the kitchen in her cottage. It was a new jar, but it had been opened, and an indentation suggested something had been pushed into it. She was afraid to eat it. If Swango was at home when she needed to clean, he would stand in the room and make Corrado vacuum around him. When he left, he always carried a duffel bag slung over his shoulder, which made her wonder whether he had something he didn't want her to see but her madam would hear nothing of these suspicions. Then one day Corrado came to O'Hare and insisted that she come into Swango's room. They had all considered it odd that Swango insisted on so much bacon and four slices of toast for breakfast every morning. Now Corrado pointed to a closet shelf and said, I'm worried. There, neatly wrapped and arranged, were dozens of bacon sandwiches. O'Hare was upset. When Swango returned that evening, she told him a fib that the cat had come across the sandwiches in his closet. "'That is unwholesome in our climate,' she lectured him. "'It will attract ants, if not worse. "'Please put the sandwiches in this plastic box and put it in the refrigerator.' But a few weeks later, Corrado came to her again with a triumphant look on her face. "'Come look,' she said, and led O'Hare into Swango's room. This time she opened the bureau drawer— Wrapped with minute precision, concealed in the center of the drawer, were more bacon sandwiches. O'Hare was alarmed. Obviously, Swango suffered from some sort of food-hoarding syndrome. "'I'm frightened,' Corrado said. "'No doctor would hide his food in such a way.' She insisted that she and Chimway begin sleeping in the other bedroom next to O'Hare's with their door open. If he asked why, they would tell Swango they had come into the house from their cottage because they were suffering from colds. Swango did seem upset at their presence, scoffing at the explanation and asking them every day when they planned to return to the cottage. But they felt their vigilance was vindicated. O'Hare slept with her bedroom door ajar so the cat could go in and out during the night. On several evenings, Corrado heard Swango open his door and come into the hallway. He would stand, motionless, peering into O'Hare's room. Each time, Corrado made a sound to indicate she was awake and he quickly returned to his room. O'Hare began to notice odd things around the house. A few souvenirs and books were missing. Small amounts of money vanished. The liquor bottles were nearly empty. 
she began to worry about what he was doing with the car. Sometimes he was out until 4 a.m. and would come creeping into the house in a way that frightened the servants. Then one day when Swanga was supposed to pick her up for lunch at home, he failed to show up, stranding her at the office. When he arrived that evening, she was angry. Where were you? she demanded. Do you think I was trying to make a getaway to Botswana? he asked in a mocking tone, offering no other explanation. O'Hare was suddenly alarmed. Such a possibility had never even crossed her mind. Had he tried to flee? If so, was there something to those stories from Manene? These suspicions hardened when the Chronicle ran a brief news item two days later. Doctor tried to escape. An American doctor accused of causing the deaths of five patients at Manene Hospital in Imberengwa reportedly tried to leave the country for Botswana, but was apparently stopped, police sources claimed. They said the doctor was believed to be still in Bulawayo, but his exact whereabouts were not known. In the wake of the incident, O'Hare terminated Swango's car privileges, a decision he greeted with what she considered a cold, hostile stare. Then a fax arrived for Swango from a medical school in Pretoria, South Africa, which O'Hare retrieved from the machine. Because you are 42, we cannot accept you for the course, the letter began. It was addressed to Michael Swango, not Swan, the name by which O'Hare knew him. O'Hare was startled. He had told her he was 27, her daughter's age. That evening she asked him about his name and age. Without any hesitation, he explained that Swango was pronounced Swan in America to avoid ethnic prejudice. Swango is an anglicized name of Swedish origin, according to family members. As for his age, the school must have misread his resume. The 68 in my birth date looks like 53, he said. That all sounded plausible when he said it, but the more she thought about it, the less sense it made. When she mentioned the discrepancies to Corredo, the maid again led O'Hare into Swango's room, where she opened the cupboard and showed her Swango's Zimbabwe work permit. The birth date on it was not 1968, it was 1954. He was actually 41. O'Hare wondered if Swango's strange symptoms might indicate post-traumatic stress disorder. Was he perhaps a Vietnam War veteran? She decided to phone his former girlfriend, whom she still knew only as Leanne. She'd wondered at the time why she'd broken off the relationship and thought the reason might shed some light on the recent strange events. She retrieved Leanne's phone number, which she'd saved from the time Swango had asked her to call and tell Leanne she was making a mistake in breaking off with Swango. O'Hare told Leanne that she was Swango's landlady and reminded her that they had met when Swango brought her to the house, adding, I know you've broken up. She didn't want to sound alarmist, so O'Hare said only that she'd begun to feel uneasy about Swango. Were you uneasy as well? I can't say, Leanne replied. Is he possibly older than he claims? O'Hare continued. Not that she knew of, Leanne said. I saw a document, a driver's permit, that said he was twenty-eight. But Leanne hardly seemed talkative or forthcoming, so O'Hare got directly to what was really worrying her. Do you think I'm in any danger? Am I quite safe with him in the house? I don't want to answer, Leanne replied, which was hardly reassuring. Why not? Leanne hesitated, as if she might say more, but then she said, You know what he's accused of, and hung up. O'Hare suddenly felt weak and lightheaded. 
There must be something to the Manene charges after all. She had to find a way to get Swango out of the house without alarming or angering him. She immediately called her cousin in South Africa. I'm scared, she said. I want to get rid of him. She and her cousin worked out a scheme in which the cousin would send a fax to the effect that her son would be teaching at the university in Bulawayo and would need a place to live, both a bedroom and an office. The fax arrived. O'Hare took it and nervously presented it to Swango when he returned that evening. She said that under the circumstances she'd have to give him two weeks' notice. Fine, he said. I'm running out of money anyway. I don't know how much longer I can afford the rent. He even mentioned that he might leave for work in Zambia, which lies north of Zimbabwe. O'Hare was immensely relieved that he had taken the news so calmly and didn't ask any questions about her flimsy cover story. The next day, Thursday, August 8, 1996, when O'Hare returned from work, Corrado met her at the gate. Mike has done something, she said breathlessly. He's too happy. He's been singing and playing your CD player. This annoyed O'Hare, because Swango had been expressly asked not to use the CD player. When she entered the house, tapes and CDs were strewn about the lounge. She knocked on Swango's door. Mike, I believe you've been playing my CD, she said when he opened it. You know that's my private property. Since when? he replied, and slammed the door. O'Hare immediately phoned her lawyer and told him everything. The Manene allegations, the bizarre behavior, the missing money, and the unauthorized use of her tapes and CDs. Get him out today, her lawyer said. I'll come out to help. She went back to Swango's room and knocked again. This time she said, Mike, I want you to leave tonight. He seemed resigned to her decision. It looked as though he had already cleaned out his room. I suppose you'll refund the rent money, he said curtly, and she wrote him a check for the balance. Then she told him she was changing the locks and hiring a security guard. Do whatever you want, he said. When he later emerged from the room, carrying his bags, a neighbor had arrived. O'Hare hoped there wouldn't be a scene, but to her surprise, he now seemed as charming as ever. He smiled and shook O'Hare's hand, bidding her farewell. I hope you're not going to talk about me he said, and then I won't talk about you. What do you mean by that? O'Hare asked indignantly. What could you possibly say? That you've gone raving mad. With that he left, slamming the door behind him. The next morning, O'Hare discovered what had evidently put Swango in such a good mood the previous day. She tried to start her car, but the motor quickly sputtered and died. She tried several times, but the car wouldn't start. On Sunday, she had the car towed to a service station. It didn't take long to diagnose the problem. Your tank is full of sugar, the mechanic said. Furious, O'Hare went directly to the police, accusing Swango of sabotaging her car. And with that, we will wrap it all up next Thursday, <clears throat> 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Catherine Massey book club what a read uh the number 605-313-5164 the code 564-943 pound press star 61 
if you would like to participate. I'm just, I'm trying to, uh, I mean, I don't ever want to hear anything about black people, any black people, regardless of where they're born, not snitching. I don't ever want to hear that again. Seriously. This dude is accused of poisoning people all over the universe. And someone calls you a female, no less with a dude. So, I mean, all the way around, like someone calls us, Hey, 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 uh, do you think I'm in danger? I'd rather not say. <laughs> I can't even like what, 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 is there something wrong with it? Yeah. I can't say. What is there to protect? Like, what? What? It could just be get him out of the house, you know? Like, he heard the allegations and such. I just don't think... Have you heard Gavin DeBecker, Gift of Fear? Yeah, you don't want to mess around. Like, sister girl, you get... None, nah, nah. I'd rather not. <laughs> no snitch. No snitch. All over. Now, see, that's one major that I have learned from this book. All over the known universe why did this happen how was he allowed to do this for so long I can tell you buddy one thing I learned watching the documentary now most of the books and things when most of the reports and whatever uh, material that talks about this case they put the suspected number of kills at 60 Swango killed about 60 people one documentary where he talks about this and I included the screenshot the doc- it's very scary people I played a little bit of it today the screenshot there's a excuse me there's a title card as they're transitioning to Zimbabwe the title card reads these events and misdeeds were so much a natural part of my entire life especially oh my god so especially in my entire time in Africa direct quote from Michael Swango I'm going to read it one more time these events and misdeeds and I don't think this quote can be in the book because this is like after they caught type thing I think these events and misdeeds were so much a natural part of my entire life especially oh my god so especially in my entire time in Africa Mike Swango that very scary people documentary Swango says the low estimate is probably 1,000. I was staggered. I said, I'm going to have to play that next week just so you all know I'm not making things up, but 1,000. That's the only time. I've not seen that in print. I've not seen anyone else. And most of the reports have said, who really knows? But when I stopped, I said, so he's saying that this could be 1,000. I maybe killed 1,000 people. I think Fresh Princess had said before, I bet he was killing people on the ambulance. That's why they fired him. 
they were real, you know, suspect about it too, where they didn't give a lot of details and just they didn't want him to be around the patients. That was the red flag. Like, hmm, that's odd. How are you even going to work on the ambulance if you're not with the patients? Like, I bet he was killing people then. If he was killing people then and at Ohio State and then South Dakota and the Veterans Hospital and uh, Northbrook, that's all in New York State and Virginia and all the co-workers and who knows in Africa if he really... I can really, what they say, let my blonde hair down, do my thing, now that I'm on the dark continent in the bush, too. Do I think, and this went on for 20 years, or who knows? Who knows? But this easily goes on for 18 years. Do I think it's possible he could have killed a thousand people? Yep. Oh, and he worked at the water supply. I forgot to even say that in Georgia. He worked at the water. Yep. Yup, it did not take long at all. Factoring in how long this went on, the access to patients and all of that, co-worker, girlfriends that he poisoned and all. Yup, very plausible that he easily could have killed a thousand people. What and, and now why was that a major part of it? White people around the world no snitching we even got brother white brother from last week he said don't tell me don't tell me i don't i don't want to no snitching you don't have to worry about me snitching because you're not going to tell me that way i don't know see 605-313-5164 the code 564 three pound press star six one if you would like to participate oh my god the gall the absolute gall I just got to get the sound clip in in case I die or something happens odd before the program wraps up man when he mentioned Jim Jones and South America are we black proud I'd already mentioned Jim Jones I said last week when he said uh, I love blacks. I love Africa. I said, that sounds real close to Jim Jones. Whew. The way that he phrased that, that they could, oh my God, you could just put that on the calendar. <laughs> Guyana, Jim Jones coming to the, what a lie. Oh, James Stewart was alive. You know, oh, what a lie. I was so appalled by that. We will get to the folks who dialed in. If we missed you totally, if you have commentary, make sure you get a hand up now. Uh, we did not hear from you at all. Uh, folks who are with us, uh, non-Clemson dad, our caller in Iowa, go uh, Hawkeyes, isn't that it? I think that's it. Go Hawkeyes, and then Fresh Princess in Philly. If y'all had commentary on the second portion, proceed. Hey, everybody. I want to talk about those bacon sandwiches. I had to look up, can you get poisoned from bacon? Because, I I mean, he's got to be hoarding those sandwiches because he's trying to poison people. I guess it has to be raw bacon, but I just don't trust it. He's Something's going on with those sandwiches. Um, and when O'Hare asked the um, girl or whoever she was talking to, should she be in danger? Now, hold up, Gus. She did say, you know what he's accused of. Now, she didn't go into, yeah, get the hell out of there. 
you know what he's accused of. Everybody is refusing to stop this guy. Everybody is refusing to even say anything. And sugar in the tank, yeah, I believe it. Why did they start in Africa? That was a question. I believe you asked it. I, you know, Swango, when I first heard the the first reading and his last name was Swango, I thought it was a I thought it was an African doctor, Nigerian doctor or some part of African doctor because his last name. But I'm going to go with what one of your previous callers, a, a real brilliant lady, she calls in all the time. What she said is they started in Africa maybe because they had to hop over to all the white people that he did. So they just wanted the white readers to know, hey, you know, it, we do the most in Africa amongst the black people, but yeah, you get ready because it is going to go into some white people that he, you know, attacked first. Um, yeah, that, that's all. That's all I had, and also the Bundy being a genius, Jim Jones a genius, the killers, the murderers, the horrible people—they're always geniuses. Why the hell are they always geniuses? I mean, my life. System of white supremacy racism requires killing for a minority population to dominate the majority non-white population. Swango said this week, I love the minorities. I'm with the minorities. And then he got to support the, oh, I thought that was so timely because we heard James B. Stewart's commentary about him being gay and then we heard this week Swango say I love the minorities and his support of LGBTQ issues and even we got the Negro homophobe which is another one of those tropes worldwide for black people old black homophobes Zimbabwe to USA and Jamaica Negro homophobes Uganda in there too Renee Bach oh yeah the Negro homophobe Negros is Negros other folks with commentary Mabby Hurst? Fresh Princess. Yes, ma'am. So the part, I think, with the bacon, I think he's trying to either make botulism or E. coli by fermenting, by, with the fermented bacon fat and the bread. Um, he's definitely trying to make um, a homemade, homemade poison. Uh, when it was stated that he helped change the mind of someone who was against homosexuality, it reminded me of the talk that the interview you had with Neely Fuller, where he was talking about alternative lifestyles. Um, it's the one where he was like, I'm in the bear now. Like, once you go there, you never go back or something like that. And he was just giving a demonstration of, okay, well, what's it the alternative to if this is so great? Like, show me what it is, and then I'll let you know if it's a worthy alternative. So that came to mind. Um, The way this man is kind of like slippery and has a bad reputation everywhere he goes, but keeps getting pass after pass after pass is really reminding me of current events when it comes to the guy in New York, George Santos, Um, known scammer, but yet Somehow he ended up in the Senate, I believe, and stayed there for quite some time while they debated 
whether or not he was actually um, a scammer. And it seems to be uh, the same case with Swango. Like, all the evidence is there. They could have easily contacted anyone in the United States. It seems like he name drops and nobody checks his credentials or even calls to follow up. And they just now started doing it. But all before, it's like if he says, hey, I'm here to help, everybody is like, okay. And even though there are many rumors about him, people still don't take those at face value. They give him second chances. That's my observation. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Third, fourth, fifth, 20th, 60th chances. I mean, what does it mean to be white? Uh, Let's see. Uh, Get in one email, then double check, see if other folks have commentary too. We're at email number two. Uh, Hi, Gus, cows, audience, callers. One, did Kristen's mother, I did Kristen's mother a disservice last week when I questioned why she didn't suspect Michael Swango of poisoning Kristen. I thought she and her husband knew he had been to prison for poisoning his coworkers, but that was not the case. Right on. I said it. I would. Yeah, it would take a while for me to kind of put all that together. That is he poisoning? You think that's what? It take me a while to think of all that. I think. Two. The author wrote about Swingo's attempt to murder the mother who was in labor and her baby, but glossed over him sexually assaulting her when he was allegedly examining her. Real J. Marion Sims. Three. Or I was. The person who questioned whether the author is homosexual because he started the book with Swango injecting the black male in the rectum. A caller confirmed the author is indeed homosexual. I also raised my suspicions about Dave Cullen, also a gay male, having some sort of sexual interest in Eric Harris and sexualizing several of the victims of the Columbine massacre. Andrew Sullivan, gay male, wrote the foreword for Sue Klebold's a mother's reckoning and his own writings on the Columbine massacre. He also wrote very tenderly about her son Dylan is another dimension to the fandom associated with serial killers. Are the authors of such literature living vicariously through these stories of these killers and have similar fantasies? Question. They are not trying to solve a problem or providing any serious or useful analysis in my opinion. It's just titillation. Now, I will submit for this book exclusively, not the others, not the, I cannot say that enough, not for Cullen, not for Sue Klebold, Andrew Sullivan, but for this book, the author, uh, Mr. Stewart, he does submit that a part of this book, it was published before they had actually locked up uh, Swango for murder and such. So he does submit that a major motivator for this book, if not the primary motivator was to get this out so that more people knew about what was happening with all of this. I think he said that even judge Cashman had asked for assistance in collating all of this so that there could be one source bang. People know what's happening with this case and all of that. That was allegedly the motivator, not just, Oh, cause he hadn't at the time this book was published. He hadn't even been convicted for the killing shit unless I've been mistaken. 1999. But titillation, for sure. That's even where the book starts at. She continues. Three, 
If I'm honest, I questioned my sanity as I wrote about my observations. It seems sexual deviance is a significant factor driving many of these serial killers, even when the sexual component is not that obvious. On the surface, Swango enjoys killing and is a psychopath, but his depravity has no bounds. He is sexually aroused, killing men, particularly black men, women, old and young people. The author glosses over this. They state that explicitly. I played that last week. It's in the uh, one of the other documentaries where they state that his sexual arousal uh, by killing people, and he does kill a lot of it, especially from his own mouth. His identity, his essence was on full display in Africa where I can kill lots of a pregnant black uh, lady, tries to kill her and her child. Black dudes, black females, everybody, black children, everybody. Kill my white land, everybody. Ah. Four, I recommended the Cows Book Club participants watch the documentary Savior Complex on Rene Bach, Uganda, before we finish reading this book to see the dynamic between the white supremacist and black medical staff. It's terrifying to watch someone who was 19 years old with no medical training dominate non-white black people and butcher black children. Heard about that here. Uh, man, man, what does it mean to be white and then to see the system kick into gear to rehabilitate her character and public image which I think is what the documentary attempts to do just as we saw during the Columbine study bowling for Columbine Sue Klebold's numerous documentaries films and talks and books etc sadly there's also a non-white female who is to this day defending Renee Bach the documentary is also worth watching to see how white supremacists sit on both sides of the argument to manipulate non-white people Uganda, right next door. Uh, let's see. Much obliged. Uh, other folks who dialed in, commentary they would like to share. Didn't miss anybody. Right on. Uh, I heard that last week, even not just the black staff. It was black patients who said that they were afraid to question, report this white doctor. And this is in so-called independent Zimbabwe, 20 years of so-called independence. And they were afraid to report this white doctor who is killing folks left and right. Not even a doctor, not even a doctor. Uh, Okay, go back, see if I can get in some of my notes before we wrap up. Uh, I really didn't even do my notes from the first portion. Uh, we got Coltart. Uh, 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 everyone thinks he is earnest. That idealistic, earnest, uh, particularly earnest, charming. Those terms get used so frequently. Uh, I, I do not remember people ever describing me as earnest about anything. Even an earnest hatred of white people. Never. Never the word earnest. Uh, Let's see. The bringing drugs into the country. Now, this is pre-9-11, so it may have been a little easier or at minimum different traveling and getting drugs, pharmaceuticals to a different continent, country, getting through customs and all of that. He is classified as white. 
he is a doctor and he does have military experience so he probably would have lots of ways to lie and use racism to his advantage to smuggle whatever and especially if he's a doctor like oh my god like uh what is it? He's got his caduceus, and oh, I'm a medical doctor. I'm trying to help the starving Negroes. Like, oh my goodness, of course. They're right on the right on. Like, easy. I can see that happening. Uh, let's see. Uh, he has lots of glowing letters of recommendation. Not only did they not switch aiding and abetting from people that, you know, just this guy is still pretty cool. All the reverse discrimination, I had no idea that that was going to be uh, in the book. Uh, let's see. I do think that that is a part of white supremacy racism, how readily white people believe the white victimhood of other white people. Um, let's see. He's got discreet access to the hospital from the room that he had at Impilo. Uh, let's see. A victim of anti-white prejudice. I don't, man, I don't know if that phrase has been used many times, but a victim of anti-white prejudice uh, and they said that this was strengthened because the patients at the former uh, hospital uh, Menene that they were still accusing him of killing people even after he had been gone which I don't know I guess if he's poisoned them could be true <laughs> it might take a while for them to actually expire uh, but man you got all these black people saying that white guy did something oh you all are just anti-white prejudice <laughs> Man, woo, tough, tough. Uh, let's see. He's dating a black nurse who he's probably poisoning too. Oh my goodness, the Pulp Fiction fascination that is so, uh, Dill, Reb. They love natural born killers by Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino wrote the screenplay for uh, Pulp, or excuse me, yeah, for Quentin Tarantino wrote the screenplay for Natural Born Killers, and then Pulp Fiction is Quentin Tarantino's tour de force, Sam Jackson and all the rest of it, and in fact, it even has that vignette where the white man gives Bruce Willis his dad's watch where he said your dad he was in prison in those slant-eyed gooks in Vietnam he had to hide this watch in his butt all that homoeroticism is there too so I see oh of course love this woohoo anyway uh, but that right there that watching all of that violence and what have you we heard that with even Sue Klebo right the arsenic and lace man keeps saying that you should watch those together savior complex and arsenic and lace Natural born, I guess natural born killers too. I said that. You did all that with Columbine. You had to watch natural born killers. Uh, let's see. Shawshank Redemption got mentioned here. Neely Fuller Jr.'s. I was even thinking, like, that's got quite a bit of racism, duh, but homoeroticism too. Andy Dufresne gets annually raped a number of times. She got, they call, they even refer to it as Gomorrah. Biblical on them. 
let's see. When talking about the psychopaths, he says, while no clear psychological pattern emerged among the perpetrators, several were above average in intelligence. All but one were white. Isn't that a pattern? All but one were white. And, and some had suffered chronic bedwetting as children. We get the urine again. And then it matures to urinating in the seven up. Swango insisted he loves Zimbabwe, love the Negroes, love Zimbabwe, love Africa. Wanted to stay and almost shyly suggested he'd fallen in love. Oh, God. Anybody that says love, really, that should be reason to back up. Like, whoa, <laughs> ball my fist up and back up, get in my defensive stance. Like, I don't know what type of, you know, scheme or whatever you got cooked, but I don't trust no loving, you know, especially they say they love black. Like, that, that, that take off and run and then still have your fist ready in case you need to strike uh let's see chapter 12 her husband's hunting trophies he died in 1990 what kind of hunting that's the same thing with swango i keep trophies folks that i'm killing we've heard that not jeff dahmer we've heard that a number of times that's white culture i got to get negra's testicles put them in a jar all the white supremacy with her we talked about she's got a guard they even got uh the constant gardener that's a different movie they got about racism in south africa but all the help inside they got whole books about that talked about that earlier this year too with uh, some of our guests from south africa uh, let's see. He said he came to Africa to uplift the Negroes, to do his part for humanity. I don't know what that means. Somebody says they come to uplift black people. Like, that's another one. Run. Uh, let's see. When they talk about him being able to ferret out information about O'Hare and Leanne about their dad and their military interest and literature and all of that. White people are generally very good at studying, paying attention. They ask questions. They're looking, scheming, trying to pick up as much data as they can to then turn around and use it against us. Uh, let's see. Jealousy is a part of the African nature. Love that one too. Uh, mm -mm -mm. He worries allegedly about his diet, but he loves KFC. Said he doesn't eat sugar and fretted about getting enough fiber, but you eat bacon and fried chicken all the time. Like, and you're poisoning people. Even Fuller said that. What's the point of all this fitness and health in order to do what? You want to be fit and healthy to kill as many people as possible? No way, man. Get out of here. Uh, let's see. They said they would go on outings, picnics to the game park. I was thinking, like, is that like hunting game? I wasn't quite sure, but okay. I mean, this is the continent, the bush even. Uh, he was vague about his birthplace, schooling, where he worked, uh, geographic references that might be tracked. All of that is why. Ask questions and get your questions answered. That alone is suspicious. Somebody you are dating, you're going to be hanging out with, living with, whatever the case, and 
this person is a complete mystery. You don't know nothing about them, their interests, what they do, nothing. Dang, okay. (laughs) At, At minimum, that would require further investigation about who this person is. He can't get no glowing letter of recommendation. Let's see, get in my last comments before we wrap up and then we'll be all done next week. Uh, the Jim Jones section was staggering. I'll make sure I get to that. Uh, we've had two times people in Africa thinking of everyone in America has a gun. Again, I submit that is what that's Reb Vodka make my day Clint Eastwood any era call of duty that is racist man racist woman racist child shooting up UNLV man the rebels that shooting was this week nah man (laughs) there are non-white people with guns but we've talked about that long effort to keep non-white people from even having firearms let's see when he talks about his not what do we call it true crime or murder mystery or whatever he's going to write about him killing I guess biography Uh, he says that the serial killer begins killing just for fun that I think uh, what you call Fresh Princess talked about that before some of what Mr. Fuller talked about man scintillating thrilling just for thrills for kicks Killing people just for kicks, for fun, for laughs, racist jokes, all of it. He says it to say it right there and really to just be kind of given, spilling out his, this is me, that uh, title card that I read before. This is my identity, able to manifest in full bloom in the bush. Killing for fun. He says uh, the fascination, that's Seattle's own Ted Bundy. Uh, with all these serial killers and even that is a part of the bragging I let it I got my scrapbooks and everything I'm so open with what my passion is killing murderers serial killers even death all of it I'm just so open I brag about it you know I don't even hide who I am to anybody um, he says he loves Ted Bundy that's why I said you watch that word because he said I love the Africans I love Zimbabwe I love blacks I love Ted Bundy. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> that, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because you love Ted Bundy, and you love the blacks. You love Ted Bundy the same as you love the Negras, or is it a little bit more? <laughs> like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think I don't think Ted Bundy and black people are equally lovable. Um. Let's see. And then he said he showed a similar interest in Jim Jones, the charismatic. Wait, that's another one. Now, see, you got you told me about 15,000 times how charming Michael Swango is. And now we got the charismatic Jim Jones, mass killer Jim Jones. That's who you're talking about. Religion of white supremacy. Whose nearly 1,000 followers committed mass suicide in 1978 by poisoning themselves themselves and guy. I mean, that is that is so out of this world error lie and I mean that event by this point was nearly a quarter century old James B. Stewart is a well educated white man attorney best selling writer Pulitzer Prize winner and this book was edited like even if you're rushing to get this book out that is so grossly inaccurate and that is a mass incident of white supremacy racism because yeah it was mostly a thousand people who died I'm not going to say suicide died were killed it was mostly black people 
not even close. Get to that later. Uh, let's see. Concern for the rights of minorities talks all about his support of gays uh, and changes his uh, partner's white woman's opinion on all of that. Joanne Daly. Uh, I thought it was significant that she could note his change in mood by looking at the changes in his handwriting. Like, wow, that is paying attention to detail and revealing all the same. Uh, let's see. Hmm. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. He poisoned the children. What? Are they? Oh my goodness. Let me, let me <coughs> <coughs> talked about Columbine. Let me say, <laughs> Woo. he's white people do not care about children that had already been foreshadowed. He said, man, if you go out killing some children, they'll fry you. No way, man. I'm white. They won't even say they're just like you. Plausible deniability. Get out of here. Uh, let's see. And they blame it on the water supply. Say it's the local nigger water. That old Robert Mugabe. They can't even get the utilities and things right since the white man not in charge anymore in Zimbabwe. Got this old no count. <laughs> they blame it on. Come on. Let's see. They said the Catholic priest. Uh, she held in high regard. He spoke to a class of children at the Catholic school about what it was like to be a doctor. I thought, number one, how many folks have they molested over there? That's what came to mind. Like, I'm going to have to investigate that before we finish this book next week. He passionately was interested in a rental James. Are you serious? Notice he didn't say the attractive, charming, charismatic, good looking. Uh, what is it? Raven. Sheen like Negro kinks. We didn't get none of that for a rental James. <laughs> yes, yes, a rental James. Previous <laughs> October of murdering his wife. He says, and even he seemed thrilled at the verdict, which puzzled old hair. Do you actually think he's innocent? Yes. He stared at her in disbelief. Of course he's not. He's snapping. Now see, see, see. In this book, I guess it was still raw for white people that this book was published in 99. So like we still, oh, if it doesn't fit in, damn Johnny Cochran, damn you, F. Lee Bailey. Oh, got us. Oh, they're still upset about it. They're like, yes, I do think he's innocent. And there has been so much white propaganda for 25 years that they have convinced a lot of people that, of course, he did it. (sighs) Jeff Tubin. Catherine Massey book club one of my favorites all time now tied with Columbine best ever in the book club Jeff Tubin run of his life let's see anything else oh I loved it when he's going at uh, Corredo and telling her you no count nigger woman and you didn't clean it right and ran 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 I don't know what that is in Zimbabwe what's nigger in Zimbabwe I have to find that out too and uh, he said well you cleaned it let me let me see. Let me see. In jail, they get a white rag, and that's how they know it cleans. What she d- question Lane? How would you know what they do in jail? Oh 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 oh! oh, oh, oh question Lane. Gee, I didn't have to go to school. Imagine if I had went to school, I'd be a genius, lawyer, astronaut. Who knows? Might have started a law school. Who knows? Got me in here cleaning up after this racist white woman shaking her finger in my face, telling me I'm stupid. But knowing this white dude is up to no good, man, I didn't even have to read Gavin DeBecker. Gift the fear. I know this dude is up to no good. Telling me storing bacon sandwiches in the closet. What?
what is I don't even know what is up with that. I know it's no good, but I'm even I don't even know how to process that. Bacon sandwiches? Do you are these for children later? For dogs? Is this like his uh breakout bag? If the police come to nab him, I'm going to snap my bacon sandwiches so I can go hide out in the jet. Like, I have no idea what the bacon stockpile is for. I'm still trying. Niggardly, I'm still thinking. See there? I'm retarded, too. I'm still trying to process that. Maybe we'll get that bit before it all wraps up next week. Uh, let's see. I love it. He gives Corredo uh, and Chimwe the empty plastic vials, and they sniff. Whoa. He's trying to poison us. Chuck it, which brilliant. These are the smartest people in the book so far. Um, let's see. Kratos suspected that Swado, that Swango had tampered with the peanut butter she kept in the kitchen in her cottage. It was a new jar, but it had been open and an indentation suggested something had been pushed into it. She was afraid to eat it. Let me say it again. Gavin DeBecker, the gift of fear if you work with other people you share an environment where there is food man be alert and because that is so common and it might not be to kill most of the time it's not going to be to kill you it'll just be you know to mess over it they'll put hot sauce in it or whatever dog hair some whatever either way you don't want to consume that either be alert you know if you got a brand new jar or bag or whatever and it's not been opened and now you go look and it's because we heard that already it was a white matter of fact you got it right there it was a white colleague at ohio state she said she went to get her lunch she said it was obviously tampered with but everything was still there so she ate it and she got sick she didn't die but we think that was swango too that's why the, hey look i know i didn't open this peanut butter what is going on here I know what man they think he did the Tylenol murders uh, let's see he did try even when he tells O'Hare that what do you think I tried to escape to Botswana and then it turns out that he did try to do it. that's why I said they do that a lot of times they'll just say things say the truth because they'll think I'm such a good liar I can tell you the truth and you still won't catch me I can tell you exactly who I am and you still don't know uh, let's see and then even then she's saying she's wondering if he's got post-traumatic stress disorder like WTH man what <laughs> most of the time if I have plucked someone's nerves and I'm doing things their suspicions that I might be a felon or a murderer it is not oh man that poor Gussie I wonder if he served in the Gulf maybe he has a little PTSD <laughs> like no let's see white people don't snitch he puts sugar in the car and that'll wrap okay we will wrap all up uh next week man this has been easily the best book that we've read uh for the year wow i've learned so much even yeah i've learned so much even even that to ruminate on yeah we did have andrew sullivan doing the forward or i think it was solomon solomon that was it for uh doing the forward for Sue Klebold's A Mother's Reckoning also he has his whole book where he talks about that where you, you don't conform and you're LGBTQ and all the rest of it like hmm is this thrills voyeurism fun 
again, Mr. Stewart did say that a part of this book was this guy had not been actually charged for the murder component, so to get the information out, he does say that uh, a number of times in the lead-up for the book. Anywho, we will wrap it up next week. Uh, Learn so much. We'll be here tomorrow for Neutralizing Workplace Racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Much obliged for everyone tuning in, hopefully worthy of your time and energy this Thursday evening. Uh, sobriety would be best. Don't let them slip a Mickey or swango your drink. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.